get your family vehicles ready for summer driving with early Memorial Day deals at Dobbs. Click on GoToDobbs.com for money, saver retire, and service deals today. Dobbs. With 43 locations, real deals are always close by. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Time now for the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. For better or for worse, you know, our our philosophies and and approach to this thing, and certainly at present, is to do everything we can to have as strong of a young, exciting talent base as possible. Uh, Our major league club and throughout our system that that can keep us in a position to to be in the mix and to contend for postseason opportunities year in, year out. Ultimately feel that our best best chance to win a World Series uh, is to put ourselves in a position where every year we have a shot. That was Rays general manager Eric Neander on with the morning show about a year and a half ago now with Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendricks and I'm Brandon Kiley. Uh, guys, the Cardinals are back in action tonight. They're taking uh, the field against the Tampa Bay Rays. And I think this is a good time to use the Rays as an example of what the Cardinals could become. And I'm not talking about operating the exact way that the Rays do. What he said there about, hey, for better or for worse, we've got to look at the long term on a year in, year out basis because that's the only way that the Rays can sustain winning. That is not something that the Cardinals have to do. They don't have to be as cold hearted as the Tampa Bay Rays are where they've got a budget of like $100 million every year that they're able to spend. Once, for example, Wander Franco starts making real money, man, that guy's going to be shipped out of town so quickly. And we all know it. We all know how this is going to end up going. Tyler Glass now. They've got him on a $5 million contract this year. You know what's going to happen in the offseason when he starts making $25 million next year? Hang on. He ain't going to be there no more. The Cardinals don't have to operate that way. They could just say, you know what? We really like Tyler Glass now. He's an excellent starting pitcher. We would love to have him back next year. And guess what? They can keep him. But the way that the Rays operate, they got to get rid of those guys. So you don't have to go full Tampa Bay Rays style. But there is something or some things that the Rays do, that the Cardinals would be well served to emulate going like, into the offseason. Like draft good pitchers? Actually, the opposite. Trade for draft and sign pitchers? good pitchers. Fair. Touche. Oh. Touche, sir. If you look at their rotation right now, the way that they acquired the vast majority of these guys is not by drafting and developing the classic way that we think about with the Tampa Bay Rays. Tyler Glass now got him in a big time deal for Chris Archer. That worked out, I would say, pretty well for the Tampa Bay Rays. Zach Eflin, a mid-tier, like, four or five starter that's pitching like a legit number two right now for the Tampa Bay Rays. They were able to find him, and they were able to hone in on exactly what he does well and only have him do that. Aaron Savali just traded for him at this year's deadline. I've got my questions about if that's going to work long term. But with the Rays, I think they'll probably find a way to get the best out of him because they've earned the benefit of the doubt when it comes to starting pitching. And then you look at the other guys. They got Shane Baz as a throw in. He was a player to be named later in the Chris Archer deal. 
they clearly identified the right guy, although he's dealt with some injuries. Shane McClanahan is your draft and develop. They drafted him the first round, did really well with that, but traded for Drew Rasmussen. Remember that trade, guys? Willie Adamas sent him up because they had Wander Franco coming, so they dealt from a position of strength. Drew Rasmussen's been a really good starter for them. They traded for Jeffrey Springs. Like, they have found guys that other teams don't value, and they've made them into really high level, either starters or relievers in the race system. So one of the things that the Cardinals could do, should do this offseason, learn a thing or two about the rate, about how the Rays go about acquiring their pitching and go ahead and get those guys because they clearly know a thing or two about it. Yeah, well, and it's going to come down to finding ways to evaluate the proper pitcher that makes sense and I think the Cardinals are first going to have to decide what they value most in terms of their pitching staff which now seems to be swing and miss stuff in the past it was pitch to contact hopefully the swing and miss stuff has them looking in different directions but my doubt with all of that I would love them to be the Tampa Bay Rays but my doubt with that is you've never really identified talent on other teams specifically pitching and said we can make the best out of him you've identified players that you thought were talented but when you've brought them over, you haven't found a way to unlock that talent. Can I push back on that a little bit? You're going to use Libertor as your example? No, I'm g- no God. No. <laughs> <laughs> Please don't mention that name. Oh, sorry. I thought that's who we were referring Young to. Young talent, I agree, Alex. Young talent, the Cardinals have not traded for them and then unlocked whatever the potential is. See, Libertor, Matthew. Older talent, though? Bond. James Bond. I, I think they found a way to do that pretty well, honestly. Remember when John Lester came over? That guy looked washed. But they used to do that really well. Do you think they could do that well now, though, without Yachty? Yeah, they did it this year. It's not the same because they didn't get him from the outside because they didn't buy at the deadline, but they found a way to turn it around with Jordan Hicks and ended up building him into one of the most valuable commodities at the deadline. Steven Matz looked like he was on the verge of not even being a reliever for you, like getting the Mike Leak treatment. And then they put him into the bullpen, we're able to fix a couple of his pitches, and now he looks like a legitimate back end of the starter uh, or back end of the rotation starter. So they did it this year. They did it with Hap. They did it with Lester. They did it with Montgomery, where they unlocked a couple of things and got him to be even better than he was in New York. And they did it with Quintana last year, where they just really that was more of a sustain thing, where everybody thought, "Oh, regression canner, regression canner, regression." It was really good here. So I do think that they maybe deserve a little more credit than we give them in terms of. Maybe not even fixing things, but honing guys in the right way. They just haven't really gone out and gotten pitching. They have failed to acquire the necessary pitching to find out if they can do it or not. They wait until the deadline to add those guys. When the pickings are pretty damn slim and when they operate the way that they do, they don't go out and get the top of the market guy to unlock a stud. They unlock the best of like a number four starter. So I I think they'd get a little bit of credit for that. The Rays deserve a lot of credit for it, though, with the way that they operate. Yeah, I was going to say, I think they deserve credit for evaluating major league talent and what they're bringing in at the deadline for those examples that you just said. I think where they have really struggled is winning trades in the offseason by whether it is giving up too much talent in their farm system for undervaluing it or in terms of not being in. And look, it's too early to put a grade out on the guys I just acquired at this deadline. That's going to take three, four years before we determine that. But it is bringing in arms and other trades and seeing how you develop them internally, because that is where the race win is. They are able to bring in those pieces that you said and develop them, too. Like that is the one thing that we'll see how the Cardinals do. 
from this deadline. Sure, we can talk about how great the returns were for Hicks and Montgomery. Look at this Roby kid they acquired, though his shoulder's getting put back on. <laughs> it's fine. The, the one thing that is yet to be determined, because we can talk about how great the hall was. They don't come to Major League level and they don't contribute, then it's going to be on the Cardinals because great they point. did develop them. And, and I think that's where... I think that's where they are trying kind of the raise route. Look, they didn't want to be sellers this year. They got put put into a position of becoming sellers. We'll see if they capitalize on it because this is their, if you want to call it their raise moment, where they go out there and they acquire p- pitching from other teams outside, from outside the organization and they develop it internally from Memphis, which is where I think most arms are. Maybe there's some in Springfield, even the position players. But I don't question them on the position player side. I just saw a new wave of those guys come up through their system that they drafted and developed internally. The pitching is where the question mark is, and that's where this is their raise moment of getting all these prospects. And you know what the Rays identify? Swing and talent. miss. Talent. Oh. Swing and miss. <laughs> but yes, like the swing and miss is talent, so they, they kind of go together. Here's the top five teams in Major League Baseball in swing and miss over the last three seasons. Atlanta is number one. No surprise there. The Chicago White Sox are number two. They just can't do anything else, right? <laughs> like everything else I'm in the organization is broken. They are number two. Well, you think about it, Kopech, Giolito, um, Cease, yeah. Lance Lynn, for all of his issues, does have swing and miss stuff. Like, I, I can see how they get up there. The New York Yankees are number three. Tampa Bay Rays at four and Houston Astros at number five. That entire list makes a lot of sense to me. The Cardinals need to find a way, even if they're not top five, to get into the top 10 or so. Because here's the other teams that are top 10, guys. The Dodgers, the Marlins, the Mets, the Brewers, and the Mariners. All of those teams are really damn good. And we want all of the pitchers that are on those teams. True. So if you can get closer to that category where you're suddenly looking at the rotation, you're like, man, yeah, they gave up three runs today in six innings, but they also missed bats and they finished with eight strikeouts. You feel a lot better about that going into a postseason series than you do with what the Cardinals have had in recent seasons. Yeah, and I, that's where I hope they have success. And it's doing something that they typically don't do, as Tebow mentioned. You're typically making trades that don't look good on your end. This time around, if you're making a trade, you're probably going to be giving up either somebody who's low on your side of the expectations and might be high on somebody else's, or you're going big name for big name in a type of trade. But on the other side of it, if you're going into these uncharted waters, you're going into the top names on, names on the free agency. So you can't use the excuse of, well, they never go get the top guys. They, they always go get the middle guys. And if they go get the top guys and the top guys don't pan out for the Cardinals, if they identify the swing and miss stuff and it doesn't work, well, now we can get back to the evaluating talent side of things. But in the past, it's been you can't evaluate talent in the middle or in the uh, in the cheaper section. You need to go after the big fish. If you go after the big fish and you still stink in it, now you're going to have to have more issues. Yeah, I, I won't crush them if they sign a big-time free agent. Like, they go out and get a Giolito. They give him the contract that the market's pushing for, and he fails. Like, I, 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 won't, I won't crush the Cardinals because they did exactly what I said. Where I will be critical is if they do go in that mid-tier market and they try to go the route of, I don't even know who the perfect example is in this, but like what Texas did before they signed to Grom, where it is, let's go get John Gray. Let's go get Andrew Heaney. Let's go get Martin Perez. And they try and do that, and they try to go with the the project of swing and miss, and then it blows up in their face, and they gave them too long a deal. Like they gave them a four-year deal, yeah. like the John Gray deal or the Stephen Matz deal, and it doesn't work out. Then I'll be critical. But if they go out and they spend on a Giolito, they go out, they spend on a... Uh, I'm trying to think off the top of my head here. Guys at the top Snell, of the market. Snell. Snell like Nola. Nola. Like they, no. <laughs> yeah, I like that idea. And, and those deals don't work. 
Uh, I'm not going to crush the Cardinals because everybody viewed them as top exactly. 10 ta- talent. That, that's how I felt about the shortstop market last offseason. If they went out and they got one of those guys and it didn't work out, well, then everybody was wrong. Like yeah. in Philly, nobody's crushing the the for, nobody's crushing Philadelphia right now for Turner. signing Trey Turner. Like nobody thought it was going to go nobody this way. Outside of one. New York is critical of the Rodon signing. Of course, because. Everybody thought, now, we knew what the risk was. We were talking about it all offseason. Alex has been talking about Carlos Rodon's arm falling off for two years now. Everybody knew what could potentially happen with him, which is missing almost the entirety of the season. It's just gone the worst-case scenario, basically, for the New York Yankees. But they went out and they tried to address their rotation the best way they could. So that's all you can ask of the Cardinals. And so if they go that Zach Eflin route, we will probably crush them. I think rightfully so. If it ends up working out for them, though, and they get the last laugh, then man, we will give them all the credit in the world. It's a matter of what works. If it works for you, we'll give you the credit. But before then, we can only evaluate what we know up front. And what we know up front is that the Cardinals need pitching in a bad, bad way. One other thing to add on this. When I look around Major League Baseball right now and I look at the best teams in the sport, so I'm talking Orioles, Rays, Rangers, Astros, Blue Jays, Braves, Dodgers, Giants, Phillies. Those are the top nine teams in my mind in the sport right now. Six of those nine teams that I just mentioned had a fifth starter going into the trade deadline that had an ERA of at least five on the season. So we're talking about guys that have an ERA pretty similar to what the Cardinals have been trotting out there as their number five starter with like Matthew Liberator. What I mean by that is the Cardinals could go into next season with a competition between like Matthew Liberator and Gordon Graceffo and Michael McGreevy and maybe Zach Thompson. And you could find a way to get away with it. Didn't say Dak. But Dak, sure, Dakota Hudson, you could go into this season with him as your number five. But if you do that, all these teams that I just mentioned, the teams that have that fifth starter with an ERA of five, they traded for a guy at the deadline. So you've got to make your decision in the offseason. Are we willing to part with what we know it's going to cost to get these these starters that we like? And we just saw what the cost was. It's it's significant. Or do we want to go in by just paying money for a number five starter that we're pretty sure is going to be good and we can get him now without having to give up prospect capital? That's a decision that has to be made in the offseason. You've got to know up front what you're willing to give up for the pitching that is necessary. And if you're not willing to give it up and you make that decision in the offseason, go spend on it. Because those are your two options that end up existing uh, for the Cardinals going into next year. Or... Just go with Zach Thompson. He's going to be sit on your hands and the guys in your system and say, these guys will work out. And then by the deadline, be like, oh, they didn't work out. Now what do we do? 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line to get involved in the show. You guys can also check us out on YouTube at 101 ESPN STL is where you can go to find us. They've got a cool chat over there. If you guys want to get involved, a bunch of people go back and forth during the show. Talk about how ridiculous me, Alex, and T-Bone are. It's a good time over there. So go hang out over on YouTube while you're watching us. Coming up at 1230, we're going to be joining by Kylie McDaniel. He had a projection yesterday, Alex, on what the rota- the arms for the rotation are going to cost this offseason. Is it really going to be about five or six years, 25 mil per guy? Um, if that is, I think the Cardinals could get one or two of those players. We'll talk to Kylie McDaniel about that coming up at 1230. But next, the Blues draft documentary was out last night, and I think it tells us a lot about how much they value the first guy they drafted this year. We'll tell you who that is next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Alex Ferrario and 
Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kylie. So there was a great uh, YouTube video that was posted yesterday. It was basically a documentary of the Blues process and how they got to drafting um, the three first round picks that they ended up with. And it, it took you through. It was called Anatomy of the Draft. You can check it out on their YouTube page right now. If you just search St. Louis Blues, you'll find it. Um, Alex, I first of all, thought it was really well done. And it took you through the entire process. Um from start to finish, essentially, you heard from Alex Steen on what he thought of the guys that they ended up drafting. You hear from a bunch of scouts, their analytics guy got into it a little bit. And so they you see them in the draft room and I'm talking pre-draft process evaluating some of these guys. They're going through like Bob McKenzie's mock draft and whether or not it matters. It was great. It took you behind the scenes a little bit. But I also thought it gave you some gave you some great insight into how excited they were to get Dvorsky. I want to hear first, and this audio is a little tough to hear at times, but I think it gets the point across. This is the Blues draft room when they were discussing Dvorsky and they were going through each of the prospects that they could end up taking at number 10 overall. It's two because Dvorsky's one of those seven that I would not move off of. And uh, everybody's banging the table. If if we get get, uh, Dvorsky and anybody 24 above, it's been a good day at the the office. Outstanding. Huge win. Yanni, do you like that center mice moving forward? I would move forward up to get Forsky. You would? But I still believe that there's a chance we can get Forsky at 10. Really? All the mocks have him at 7. Bob's got him at 7, but the rest have him at 10. First of all, I want to know what that man knew because I went into that draft expecting him to be gone. Like He knew Arizona was going to make one bad draft at 7 or 6, wherever they drafted and knew Dvorsky was going to go. That was impressive. So that drafting room is basically like shocked at the possibility that Dvorsky is going to be there. Like you heard Doug Armstrong there. The, one of his scouts says, hey, I think that there's a chance that Dvorsky could be there at 10. I would move up for him, but I think there's a chance he's going to be there for us. And Doug says, really? <laughs> it's like when when Alex says something that I'm surprised by, and I say, oh, really? Bleeping was, kidding me? That was the exact same reaction that Doug Armstrong had in that room when discussing it. And then when they get him, you see the relief from everybody around that table. And after they made that selection, Doug Armstrong looks over at his lieutenant and he he says this. We have a chance to have a great draft now. You got the the guy you wanted. We just take our time, relax, see what's there at 25 and 29 and walk out with three guys you really like. You were so excited he dropped an F-bomb. Yeah. Army basically put his feet up and said, we're good here. (laughs) Everything else is gravy. We got the guy we needed at number 10 overall. Alex, the reason why I find this so interesting, everybody's going to tell you all we're thrilled about who we ended up getting at at whatever number you selected, right? Everybody got the top guy on their board that (laughs) remained. Yeah, that's why you drafted him. You had no other option. (laughs) I think the Blues can actually say this. There were five guys that were consensus top five players in this year's draft. And then everybody kind of went off the board after that. Based on what you could read between the lines in this documentary, the Blues have that same top five, and then they had Ryan Leonard and Dvorsky. We don't know the order. It could have been Dvorsky, then Leonard. We're not really sure. But those were the next two guys that they wanted. For them to get one of those two at number 10, when you have three other picks between them and where they were, 
that is a remarkable job by them. And it's super impressive in terms of the preparation, clearly, that went into being able to make that pick possible. And they, they're clearly thrilled with what they could end up getting. The draft at 10 for the Blues was all about either risk or certainty. The certainty was Dvorsky or Leonard, because if you listen to Doug going into that draft, the five names that were going to be gone and they knew it were Bedard, Carlson, Fantilli, Smith, and Michkov. Yeah. Those are the five he knew that were going to be gone. And then it came down to, okay. He said, by the way, in one of their meetings, I'm just going to make an executive decision. Connor's going number one. We're not talking about Bedard today. Nobody even <laughs> laughed. It's like, Doug, this has been a long week already. Can we not with the jokes right now? But then it was Arizona, Philly, Washington, and Detroit. And of those four teams, who was going to make a mistake? And surprisingly, two teams made the mistake. One was Arizona not taking one of the top eight guys. And then you had Detroit taking Danielson. And go back and listen to our draft coverage. I was ecstatic on the broadcast because... Detroit taking Danielson, I fully believe that after Leonard was gone to Washington, then the video, Doug Armstrong had called a team and said, we're moving back because he just assumed Dvorsky was going to Detroit and they had the trade in place. And then as soon as it didn't happen or they called, I think Detroit and said like, Hey, who are you taking? Cause we need to know if we're making this trade. They said, Oh really? And then they hung up and then they canceled the trade. That tells you that they wanted the certainty there with Dvorsky. You knew what Dvorsky was going to be. They project him to be somebody who could be in the NHL this season. He's not going to be. But the Blues looked at that and said, our retool just got done faster. Because if this was going to be Nate Danielson or they had to move back and take like a Zachary Benson or a Daniil Boot, all of those guys are a three-year process. Dvorsky might be a one-year process where after this season, where he plays in Sweden again, he could be competing for an NHL roster spot next year. So that's why Dvorsky was their guy. And frankly, he's different than what they typically draft, which is smaller, faster skaters that are pure goal scorers. This is a 200-foot player. I'm impressed by what they were able to accomplish. I also think it's interesting the way that they went about this draft with the two guys that we just discussed, with Leonard and with Dvorsky. Those are not the most fleet of foot players. Their profiles in the draft were, we're heavy on pucks. We're going to play with a little bit of physicality. Now, Dvorsky, I'm not saying is going to go out there and, and finish with like 10 fights over the course of the season. But he is somebody that plays. His biggest weakness in his profile was that he's not not the fastest guy on the I think on the, the, blues, the Blues, at least in the video scouting, was he pulls guys into the fight with them. Exactly. And so when you've got a player like that, it's a little different profile than what you have with, for example, Jordan Cairo, mm-hmm. right? And so Leonard and Dvorsky both come with that kind of a profile. Alex, does does that tell you anything about the direction that the Blues are heading in? To me, it tells me that they're trying to recapture what they used to have success with, which is, yeah, you've got the offense. Yeah, you've got the skill. And now you have speed. But a majority of the roster that the Blues had success with for so long were guys who were tough to play against. Jaden Schwartz, Braden Shen, Ryan O'Reilly, TJ Oshie, David Perron. That era were guys that when the puck was on their stick, you couldn't get it off of it. And they would be able to excel offensively, but they were just as sound defensively. And that's what this Dvorsky sounds like. So to me, if you go back in the last three or four drafts that they've accomplished, the the top picks that they've made, with the exception of Snugger, I think that started this trend last or two years ago. But Bolduke and Thomas and Kairu, like these guys are all about skill and speed 
and the goal scoring ability. That's not the case with Dvorsky. Dvorsky's a good offensive player, but he's just as good of a defensive player. And I think the Blues are trying to put that back into their system now that they have a cupboard full with some offensive players. 314-399-9646 is the air comfort service. Tax line. This comes from the 980. So wait a minute. I'm supposed to be impressed with the fact that the Blues got a guy at number 10 that you guys think should have been uh, gone before because the three teams before them screwed up. I guess it's impressive because the number seven guys that they could have traded up to get him, but stood pat instead. I just don't think they did something to jam to dance around about. I think they got lucky and sometimes luck is really all you need. Sometimes luck is about preparation. Sometimes because you are so prepared, you are more likely to put yourself in an advantageous situation, right? Sometimes I think we talk about with baseball guys get lucky with a bloop single. Well, maybe they were prepared. Maybe they knew what the next pitch was going to be, and they knew that, hey, because this is low and outside, I'm just going to send it into right field. Maybe that's the right way to go about your process in that situation. The Blues knew, as you saw in the documentary, there was a decent chance that Dvorsky was going to be there at 10. And so instead of taking some of the draft capital to move up, they said, you know what, we'll stand pat. We believe we're going to be able to get our guy at number 10 overall. And we're going to be able to get three guys in the first round instead of using draft capital to move up to get our guy. So their preparation allowed them to be quote unquote lucky because they had intel on what other teams were likely to do in front of them. The other thing, and you'll see this in the anatomy of the draft YouTube video that you can find right now uh, at the St. Louis Blues YouTube page, Doug Armstrong has very good relationships with general managers around the league. So much so that he was able to get deals basically done prior to the blues being on the clock and then was able to give those general managers a head up a head a heads up ahead of the blues actually making their selection because he could talk to teams that were drafting in front of them to find out who they were going to be picking before they went up and made that selection that doesn't happen without a lot of trust because like for example the predators were one team who was drafted number 9 it was uh detroit, detroit that was, was drafting nine, nine. but detroit in the video the he shook hands with david poyle and said who are you taking and he said we're taking Molendike. and he said okay and then he went back to his table and I said i think that was at like 24 cuz the blues yeah. had a, a potential deal to trade out of 25 mm-hmm. if their guy wasn't there the same thing was true at 10 mm-hmm. if detroit ended up taking Dvorsky, the blues were planning to trade back so he found out from Detroit ahead of Detroit making their selection, which doesn't happen, by the way, um, who they were going to be selecting. So that way he could then inform another general manager, hey, we're going to go ahead and make our pick because we want Dvorsky here. That's just good general manager. Yeah, well, and to prove that this isn't luck, he even said in the documentary going into the draft that we've got a list, or I think it was when he was calling about trading back, he told Tony Feltrin and said, we've got these five guys available to us if we trade back. There's four teams in front of us, so one of these guys is going to be available. So this was not luck of, oh, Dvorsky just fell to us, I guess we'll take him. This was holy bleep, Arizona took Dmitry Simashev and didn't take a Dvorsky or a Leonard. That means this is going to trickle backwards. But then when Leonard went, they said, okay, well, Detroit's going to take Dvorsky. We've got to move, but we've already identified the next player that we want to take, but we're not taking him at 10. Somebody on the text line from the 314 but says, but they were never planning on moving up, were they? They talked about it in, in the video the in some scout. of their pre-draft scouting process of what it would take to move up in the draft. They also had discussions about where they would be willing to move back. You mentioned it, Alex. He had a conversation with his lieutenant right before the draft of, hey, would you rather have three picks in the first round and then two in the third round or 
was like four in the the, top 38 or something like that. And what you can kind of discern from it was basically there was a potential of them trading down with Arizona. That that's what the move would have likely been for the Blues when you read between the lines a little bit on it because they mentioned 38 picks. <laughs> Who was picking at 38? It was Arizona. Um, so the way that they went into this, they were prepared for every scenario. What does it look like if we move up? What does it look like if we move down? These were all the conversations we were having on the radio. The Blues were having the same conversations internally, as they should. It's their job. If we can do it on the outside looking in, they certainly can do it on the inside. But when you see it for yourself behind the scenes in this documentary, I do think it gives you a glimpse into what that process was like for the Blues, how they ended up with a guy that they clearly loved in Dvorsky, and what that ended up allowing them to do the rest of the draft. So uh, kudos to the Blues for going into that. And maybe more importantly, kudos to to the Blues for bringing us inside on what it looks like to give us a glimpse of the process for NHL general managers around the draft. It was great work by Trevor Nickerson and his team to to get all of that insight and see kind of behind the scenes, but it gives you, it gives you optimism and why you're just not saying, Oh great. They got some guy at 10. Who cares? Look at what the, the job that Tony Feltrin did later in the draft with Snuggerud and Bolduc in the past couple of years. And now look at who they just got at number 10 and how excited they are. That's why you should be excited. All right, 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line to get involved in the show. Questions and answers is coming up in about 15 minutes or so. But coming up next, we're going to dive into some NFL quick hitters with one team doing something in the preseason and treating it the way that it should be treated. We'll tell you what that is next year on 101 ESPN. All these crazy alien stories can't be true, can they? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAPpodcast.com. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Quick hitters, Alex, let's start with some news around the league that might impact your fantasy drafts. Uh-oh. Jonathan Taylor, according to ESPN.com, has left the Indianapolis Colts training facility to continue rehabbing his ankle injury off site. We know that he is hoping to get a contract extension from the Colts. He has requested a trade from the Colts, and Jim Irsay said, uh-uh, not happening, sir. Alex, would you be concerned about drafting Jonathan Taylor this year in fantasy if this thing continues? Yeah, if he said he was at full health and happy with the Colts, I'd be concerned about drafting Jonathan Taylor where they're expecting him to go, especially after last year. Didn't you suffer from that? Yes. Okay, yeah. I drafted him over Christian McCaffrey last year in our 101 league because I was concerned about Christian McCaffrey's injuries. Ah, we know why. He wants to change the rules a little bit. Jonathan Taylor injuries. But yes, I'm already concerned about Jonathan Taylor being a running back and not having a good season next year. But now with the frustration of the Colts and with this ankle thing, yeah, I'm uh, would be very skeptical of drafting Jonathan Taylor anywhere near the first or second round. Man, I was so excited about him, too, because he's in that uh, RPO offense with Anthony Richardson. That could be a great offense for running backs, especially around the goal line. Get their backup running back. Now I'm absolutely terrified. Isn't he Who is their too? backup running back? Wasn't it? Moss, didn't he break his arm? 
I think that's they should trade or they should sign Zeke. Yeah, they should because they're running out of running backs. I, I think that's yeah, I think Zach it was Moss. Moss, and I think he's hurt. I think he broke his arm in camp. Their starting running back now is Evan Hull, a fifth round pick this year. They've got oh. Jake Funk draft as their current at, backup. Draft him in the first round. Got Kenyon Drake. Do they? Apparently. <laughs> I forgot he was still putting football. They got a lot of running backs. So where are you taking him? Like right now, your first round running backs in your fantasy leagues are McCaffrey, Eckler, Bijan, Saquon, and then Jonathan Taylor. Are you taking him behind like Nick Chubb, Derrick Henry, Josh Jacobs? Yep. Tony I, Pollard? Yep. I would take Pollard over him. Najee Harris. That's where my cutoff is. That's Although it. Najee That's had a good year with Pittsburgh. At least, and you know Najee is the primary back for that team. Would you rather have Brees Hall, who's coming off of the significant knee injury, or Jonathan Taylor, who has this questionable situation? I'd have Taylor because a running back could just lose his explosive like that with a knee injury. This yeah. is a ankle and, injury. So, like, I mean, it could have the same sure. effect, but... A knee is much more concerning, and maybe that's just me because I saw that how quickly it went for Todd Gurley and his knee injuries. I, Especially I in that Taylor. system with the Jets and how many weapons Aaron Rodgers is going to have. I don't know how much even Brees Hall would be a factor with all of that. So, yeah, I would probably – I would really debate it, though, because I just – I'm very skeptical of Jonathan Taylor so this year. So you're looking at him mid-second round is probably what yeah. you're going to be looking at. And even then, I think Jonathan I'm going to take Taylor more wide receivers than I would take a running back in yeah. Jonathan Taylor. Yeah, your mid-second round receivers this year are Jalen Waddell, Amon Ross St. Brown, and Devontae Adams. I would, I would be rather taking have any of those, those guys than yeah. uh, Jonathan Taylor, yeah. honestly, given all of the question marks. All right, as we continue with – NFL quick hitter, some news around the league. Somebody from the 636 said, guys, I think Kareem Hunt would be a better fit on the Colts than Ezekiel Elliott. Agreed. However, the New Orleans Saints are expected (laughs) to sign Kareem Hunt, according to ESPN.com. Guys, this comes after yesterday it was announced that Alvin Kamara is going to serve a three-game suspension for the incident that took place in Las Vegas. So you've got Kareem Hunt down there. Kendra Miller is a rookie that they took this year. There's been some on and off buzz on him. There were some questions about his weight coming into camp, whether or not he was going to be in shape. Guys, how do you view Alvin Kamara and Kareem Hunt in your fantasy leagues with the suspension for Kamara and now the signing? We know where Kareem Hunt's going to be playing in 2020. If I'm not mistaken, Alvin Kamara was kind of underwhelming last year, too. He, he was. dealt with injuries, and then when he did play, he just was not as much of a factor. Now you've got a different quarterback, a better quarterback with Derek Carr this year. Um, I still would be a little skeptical of either of those running backs. Here are the running backs that are going around him right now. Javante Williams, David Montgomery, Isaiah Pacheco. Was How that, would you, who is that around? Uh, this is around Alvin Kamara. Okay. I would take Javante Kamara Williams, David Montgomery, Isaiah Pacheco. How would you put Alvin Kamara into that category? I would take Kamara overall. Really? I'd mm-hmm. put him underneath all. Really? I think so too. Yeah. I because I because of the suspension plus that now you've got a guy that yeah. could take some of the passing game. What work. round is that in? This is the sixth round. See, in by then though, I feel like I at least have my primary running back, and I could get somebody else there because when Kamara comes back after a three-game suspension, the next group of running backs is Rashad White, AJ Dillon, Rashad Penny, James Cook. That's where I think like Alvin Kamara is between that first group that I mentioned yeah. and the second group. I'd agree. He's somewhere in the middle for me. I agree because of the suspension and the down yep. year last year. Um, and like you said, he is going to be out of the passing game now because, sure, Hunt's going to take the bulk of the load now. 
But he was more of a – he's just more of a pass-catching running back at this point. Somebody kind of mentioned they also signed Jamal Williams. Good point. Forgot about that. That's a potential goal linebacker as well, which could take oh, take yeah. away some of those high-value touches uh, for Kamara and Fantasy as well. The other bit of news, this coming from ESPN.com as well. Guys, Eric Bieniemy's level of intensity as some Washington Commanders players, quote, a little concerned, end quote, according to head coach Ron Rivera. He told reporters yesterday that some players have approached him to to discuss their issues with the enemy who's entering his first stint as the Washington commanders offensive coordinator. (laughs) Washington's concerned and frustrated because they don't know what winning feels like. Like, Oh, this is, this is how a winning offensive coordinator works. Let's be honest. That's not a winning offense. Offensive not, not coordinator. Because of, not because of the enemy, because they've got no talent. I mean, they got talent. They don't have a quarterback. I. But this is going to be a disaster in Washington. I'm I really feel bad worried. for the enemy. Yeah, I'm worried about them this year. Like, we're trying to talk ourselves into a fifth round quarterback. Yeah, that's what we're doing with Washington. They have a terrible <laughs> offensive line. There's reports coming out that their offensive line is getting crushed so bad by the first team defensive line that they have to be serviced by the second team defensive line to get their practices going. It's it's bad. (laughs) All right. So Washington, the uh, Caleb Williams front runner for this year, man. I I don't know what I hope. I hope he lands in a better situation than that. They got a new owner now, man. It's all good. Yeah. Yeah, Let's see. Need a new coach and a new offensive coordinator and a new quarterback. They're probably going to change everything. They're going to be so bad. Like new ownership. Like, look, I think Ron Rivera is a good coach. If he's in a good spot, he was in a bad spot with Dan Snyder, but I, I could see them clean in house next year. Cliff Kingsbury, coach of Washington next year with I, uh, Caleb Williams. We were just talking fantasy. I don't know if I want to take anybody from that team fantasy wise this year. Washington. I don't know. I mean, even Terry McLaren, it's like it's it's great, but I don't even know if I want to touch that. That's the thing, dude. There's some court some wide receivers this year that I'm like, I just don't want to watch their offense. <laughs> Like, I just don't want to wake up on Sundays and say, I have to watch the Washington Commanders today because I have J- Jahan Dotson. I, I don't want to. Oh. I don't want to watch that offense. I would rather draft somebody from the Eagles or somebody from the Detroit Lions later in the draft. Like, I just. I was stuck I watching can't get myself to Brian do Robinson a lot last year with that oh, Washington dude, they're team. running backs. I want nothing to do with this. <laughs> well, I was nothing. Why? Because they can't block? Because yeah. they stink. <laughs> it was a waiver pickup, and I was miserable that moment of the season. <laughs> All right, final thing as we go through some NFL quick hitters. I think Mike Vrabel is doing something really cool with the Titans' first preseason game. Preseason doesn't matter. We know that half of these teams play like their third stringers at the opening of the game because they don't want anybody to get hurt. So let's treat them as such. The Titans are going to have their defensive line coach, Terrell Williams, be the head coach in their first preseason game against Chicago. Now, this isn't because Mike Vrabel's going through anything. They just want him to get this experience. Which makes a ton of sense. And honestly, I'm shocked it took this long to get here, Alex. We see this with NBA Summer League. When you've got split squads, whether it's in baseball or in the NHL, teams will have an assistant coach take over for one of those games as the head coach for that specific game. Why haven't we seen this before? I think it makes all the sense in the world. And I think it serves two different things that end up being a positive. One, that assistant coach gets their name in the news. So now the owners around the league that, let's be honest, are a bunch of you know what? They have a better awareness of some of these assistant coaches around the league, as opposed to just recycling the same names that we've heard for 20 years Two, it gives that guy an opportunity to actually deal with the stuff that you have to do as a head coach on game day. You deal with timeouts, you deal with challenges, you deal with personnel packages, you deal with having to be in charge of both offense and defense at the same time during a game. There's no other situation that prepares you for that. 
We saw what happened last year in Denver when a guy was completely unprepared to be a head coach. I love this. I hope it, it's something that catches on around the league. I'm surprised it hasn't happened yet. Agreed. Like, I'm surprised some of these coaches who have been around for so long, guys like Andy Reid or Bill Belichick, wouldn't do this. One, because that's how you that's how you grow your coaching tree. The more guys that you give the wisdom to and they show success with, the better it looks on you. So how do you do that? Well, you don't just do that by letting them stand on the sidelines and just be the coordinator all season. You give them some head coach, head coaching opportunities. And the best time to do it is preseason when nobody bleeping cares about it and you're playing your second and your third and your fourth string guys. You put these coaches in place. I know we've talked about it in the office hockey they do this in preseason where like Baruby will send Steve Ott with a team to a different place or a couple of years ago, Mike Van Ryan to another place. And those guys got those opportunities to coach. It just puts your name out there more and it gives you more experience. Yeah, I'm glad to see that Vrabel's doing this, giving a coach an opportunity. And I hope I don't know if he'll do the same coach throughout the preseason, but I don't mind if he did or if he did a different coach each game. I, I think that's the best thing for these coaches to do is to learn that, as you said, because then you learn the game management side man i love sean mcveigh he could have used a moment like this when he was an offensive coordinator because that dude was burning through timeouts like they were candy (laughs) when he first started he still does that and when he started he didn't even worry about both sides of the ball he truly called the offense and then he basically handed things over to wade phillips on the defensive side which is tough to do as a head coach so i'm glad to see that the nfl is or at least mike vrabel is trying this I think this is going to be something that you see probably, I don't know when it'll take off, but I think in the next two, three years, a lot of coaches will be doing this. That's Tanner Hendrickson. He's Alex Ferrario, and I'm Brandon Kiley. 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line. We'll get to questions and answers coming up next. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. You've got questions. We may have the answers. Maybe. BK and Ferrario's questions and answers on 101 ESPN. Tanner Hendrickson and I'm Brandon Kylie. 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line. Guys, let's start with this from the 573. Do you think that the Cardinals will be leery of signing a pitcher that is attached to a qualifying offer since they will likely have a higher draft pick than they've been able to get in the last decade? I do think that's something they're going to take under consideration. And it's something that we should probably keep in mind as we discuss some of these pitchers. Because, like, for example, Aaron Nola's going to get the qualifying offer. Definitely going to happen, no doubt about it. The Phillies would be crazy to not give him the qualifying offer. Which means, if you sign him after he rejects it, you will have to give up your second-round pick. Meanwhile, that is not going to be attached to, as an example, Lucas Giolito. If you think that the two pitchers are comparable, and I don't know if you do or not, but just based on your evaluation, if the money is the same, two pitches are, pitchers are comparable, and one of them I have to give up a second-round pick for, the other one I have to give up nothing in order to sign, you would definitely lean towards signing Lucas Giolito. The same is true for the Japanese pitchers. Now, there's a posting fee that is associated with one of them, the lesser of the two, so you'd have to spend like an extra $15 million or something on top of whatever the contract is to sign him for the right to sign him, but that's less than that second round pick value potentially is to your team. So it really comes down to like, what do you value? Do you value the player more? Is it worth it to be able to get that guy? Blake Snell, I think, fits into that category. Aaron Nola fits into that category. Or 
do you want to get the guy that's not attached to the draft pick compensation? It is absolutely something that I think will be under consideration. Yeah, I agree with you, especially if we're talking about a team that's going to have a top five pick and then that that second round pick. You're, I mean, you're talking essentially still a first round pick for them. That's something, especially if the Cardinals are still adding to their depth and still sitting there and changing their pitching model. They're not going to want to just give that up for anybody. But at the top of the market, it just depends on how they value certain pitchers, which goes back to what we talked about. You got to make sure you value the right top end pitcher if you're going to give him that money. Yeah, and I think they're going to weigh heavily on it even more outside of what you guys just said because they gave up their second round pick last year to sign Contreras. So I I don't think they want to go back to back drafts. And with that pick being potentially higher, and lose that second round pick. So I, I think it's going to be a big factor. I, I think the only way they sign somebody that gets QO'd, as much as we've talked about Snell, Snell might be different because of what you said. He is probably worth it to give yep. up a second round pick for. But outside of that, like Nola, Gray, like the only way I see them potentially signing them and assuming they get the QO, which I think is right, I think the only way they sign them is if like everything just goes awry and it's like, oh crap, that's our pivot. I think Sonny Gray is the exact type of guy that they will avoid if he gets qualifying offered. Yeah. I, and I don't know if he will or not with Minnesota. I would think that they would probably want to because if he accepts it, great. And if not, now you've got him attached to the QO and he's going to get less on the market because of it. I don't think that the Blues or the Blues, the Cardinals would sign Sonny Gray if he's attached to a QO. Giolito, if he was attached to one, he's not going to be. Maybe. Nola, maybe. Snell, maybe. You pay for Wilson Contreras for top-end starting pitchers that are attached to it. You don't do that for a number three starter. You, you can find alternatives. Uh, from the 636, Alex, what are your thoughts on if the Blues will make any more moves prior to the season, or do you think they are done? No, they're done. They're done. The only other thing I could see them doing is maybe offering a couple of uh, tryouts for certain players, but if they do, it's going to be guys that are trying to audition for a job, not with the Blues, because I think the Blues roster is set right now. Uh, from the 636, guys, have you talked at all about Mizzou getting in on the top recruits in the state? What do you make of this? We have talked about it a bit. We talked about it yesterday. It sure seems like the top two players in the state are at least leaning towards coming to Missouri. As recently as a month ago, that was not even under consideration. There's a couple of things that are taking place here. One, I think Eli Drinkwitz made his pitch and the guys were receptive to it. Ryan Wingo is a wide receiver from the St. Louis area that is a five-star recruit, top 20 player in the country. Everybody's very excited about him. It sure sounds like he's at least possible now for Mizzou. That would be a big get. The biggest one, though, is somebody that's committing within the next week, and that's Williams Winery. He's a defensive end out of the Kansas City area. Five-star kid, top five player in the country based on every single report that's out there, and it sure seems like he's leaning towards coming to Mizzou. Second thing that's going right here for those two players in particular and for the top-end talent that could potentially in the future commit to Mizzou, T-Bone, we talked about this earlier today. The recent change in NIL law for the state of Missouri is a huge factor. Gabe D.R. mentioned this earlier today. Apparently, there's fine print in this law, Alex, where if a player from the state of Missouri commits to an in-state school, so like the University of Missouri, for example, they can sign an agreement. It doesn't have to be their NLI, which they have to wait until September to sign the National Letter of Intent. It can be a financial aid agreement, which is a non-binding agreement, which means that they're not technically tied to the school, which brings up a whole other can of worms. They can sign something now in September when this law is put into place and they can start receiving their NIL money immediately. If they sign anywhere else, they cannot get that money until they step foot on campus, which would be June 1st of next year. So you're essentially getting six months paid 
at Mizzou that you would not be able to get anywhere else if you signed with them. So I think that is a big factor here for some of these kids that are signing in state. If you get, let's just to make it easy, $100,000, right? Or 120K. So you get paid $10,000 a month as a student athlete for NIL. You're getting basically more than half of that before you step foot on campus at Mizzou. You're getting 75 grand to go to Mizzou where you would get zero to go anywhere else between now and June 1st. So that is something that I do think is a factor in some of these recruitments. That's how you I, win the recruitment battle. I knew it couldn't have just been Eli. Money matters, it. man. Money matters. It talks. If if I was an 18-year-old kid and you tell me, hey, you go to this place, Ohio State, you can get 500 grand, but you can't see any of that until June 1st. Or you can go to Mizzou, get paid the exact same amount of money, but it's Mizzou versus Ohio State, but you're getting that starting in three weeks. Which one do you want to go to? Give me the money now. I'll take that one. <laughs> 17 years old. I want to make 500 grand as I'm 17 years old. So, yeah, I think the uh, the new law that has been implemented in Missouri, and I think there's three other states, that has been a huge factor for the University of Missouri. Coming up next, are the Cardinals lacking in identity, or is it just us lacking in understanding of what they're trying to accomplish? We'll talk about it next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. The Dodgers mix and match, but they too know who they are. They know that for the most part, Freddie Freeman's going to be a first. Max Muncy's going to be somewhere in the lineup and on and on. Rays, same deal. They may mix and match, but they know how they want to mix and match. The Giants know who they are. Their lineup may be different every single night, but they know if there's a lefty on the hill, this is our team. If it's a righty, this is our team. I don't think the Cardinals know who they are. I think they want to desperately be like both. I think they want to be the Braves, and I think they want to be the Dodgers. I think they want to be... You know, a team that can have this positional flexibility, but it leads to problems. The Cardinals are this mix-and-match team, but Arnado and Goldie and Contreras and Donovan and Edmund and now Walker and you know, Win will be established players. I don't think they know who they want to be. That was Anthony Stalter on the fast lane yesterday, making an interesting point about the Cardinals identity or what he believes to be a lack of an identity. And let's focus specifically on the lineup side of things here. We all know they lack an identity when it comes to their pitching. Actually, you know what? They have an identity. It's just a bad one. So we'll get to that. We've discussed it ad ad nauseum. I want to focus on the position player side of things for just a moment, because that's what they did on the fast lane yesterday. And it was what I thought was a really interesting discussion. Alex, I, I totally understand where Anthony Stolter's coming there. And I think it's a really compelling point, honestly. I come at it from a slightly different angle, though. I think the Cardinals know what they want to be. I think the Cardinals wants to be a team that has everyday position players. Because every team wants to be that. It's just really hard to find guys that are that. They found that in Paul Goldschmidt. I think Nolan Gorman has emerged as that for them this year. I think Nolan Arenado is that. Wilson Contreras, while not an everyday catcher, is an everyday player in your lineup. He probably starts two out of three games for you at catcher, and then the other day he's going to be in there as a DH. So he's going to play 150 games for you next year, most likely. I think Lars Nupar has basically become an everyday player for the St. Louis Cardinals. Now, we can agree with that or not, but I think he's become that for them. Jordan Walker is 
as close as you can get to an everyday player at this age for the Cardinals as well. That's six spots in your lineup that are basically everyday players. What we're really discussing here is what they do with the other three spots. And that's why I find this to be such an interesting discussion, because I think one of those spots is probably going to be Brendan Donovan, but it's not always going to be at the same position. I think one of those spots is going, or the other two spots are probably going to be a platoon. And I think that's how you become what the Dodgers do with their lineup or what the Braves do with their lineup or the Rays do with their lineup. It is very different than what we are used to here in St. Louis. That does not mean, though, that it is wrong. They can go about it this way and end up getting the best out of their guys by platooning like Lars Newtbar and Tommy Edmond next year in center field. That doesn't inherently become a bad thing. They could platoon at DH next year between like Wilson Contreras and Alec Burleson. And because of what Alec Burleson is able to do against right-handed pitching and what Contreras does against left-handed pitching from the DH spot, you end up getting an excellent production out of your DH spot. Kind of similar to what they did last year, honestly, with Albert Pujols and Nolan Gorman. Again, I understand that it's so different and that it is a uncomfortable thing to do because if you get one of those two guys that struggles in your platoon, you become what the Giants were last year if you do this at too many different positions. But I think the Cardinals actually know exactly who they're trying to be. It's just a matter of whether or not it works. And earlier in the season, it failed because too many of their hitters weren't hitting as part of those platoons. And those three platoon positions that you're talking about, shortstop, left field, and center field, correct? For next year? Basically, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, this is where it gets a little difficult. Is It's not like a position necessarily because it could be it's a platoon players. between different players and Brendan Donovan. And Brendan Donovan could start one day at second, the next day at third, the next day at first, the next day in left, and the next day in right. And it shouldn't surprise anybody. Right. He's basically become your version of Ben Zobrist, but with even more position flexibility than what Ben Zobrist had for the Rays, the Royals, and the Cubs. And what's wild about this is, at least from what I understand over the last four or five years, the one thing I always hear Cardinals fans scream about is, I want to be more like the Dodgers that used Chris Taylor. I want to be more like what the Cubs had in Ben Zobrist, where you have this guy who's so effective and you move him around, and he is so effective. And the issue that I see with this is, You've been trying the other way for so long, where you've been trying, where you've had the designated players in the everyday positions and you've moved forward with it. The last couple of seasons, it's been Tyler O'Neill and Bader and Carlson in the outfield. It's been Paul DeYoung at shortstop. It's been Yadier Molina behind the plate. It's been Colton Wong. And then it was Tommy Edmond at second base. You've had the distinguished players in that position and it's worked, but it hasn't worked to the effect that you've looked at it and said, oh, that's how we're winning a World Series because your offense has gone cold for you at times. Whereas now... If you've got Alec Burleson sitting on the bench and you've got a righty on the mound, if you've got Brendan Donovan available to you, if you've got one of these catchers who's hitting so well, why wouldn't you want to find ways to get those bats more for you? If the defense can hold up in that position, which Brendan Donovan is the perfect example, he can play both corner outfields for you. He can play second base. He can play third base. What's the harm in having him rotate through your system more and more and more so you keep your bat available to you? Essentially, you're going to be doing that with Wilson Contreras, right? It's either going to be DH or catcher, and you're going to be making sure that bat's in the lineup. So I, I just don't understand why that would be a problem for people because for the longest time, the Cardinals have not been that team. And you've looked at the Dodgers win, and you've looked at the Braves win, and you said, I want to be like that. Well, now you are trying to be like that. The problem is 
The pitching's not holding up for you. It's not the position players. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think they do kind of want to be what the Dodgers are, and I think they can do that now, and I think this was the conversation we had last year because that's the way Ollie Marmol likes to manage. He likes to manage with some some platoons, not a lot of platoons, but some, because you're right. I think they've got probably six spots that are locked in terms of everyday positions next year, and as you said, Donovan's an everyday player. You just have to wrap your mind around that it's everyday by bouncing around across the diamond, so... I think that's the way they want to be built because that's the way Ali Marmol has managed. That's the way he did it last year when he had matchups that work. To your point, like it looks great when it works, and when it goes south, it just looks terrible, as we saw this year in the outfield. So I, I think that is the way that they want to try and be built. And I think you saw – I mean, that, I know it was philosophical differences with hmm. Mike Schilt, but I think that was part of the philosophical difference. Mike Schilt will, would not manage the way that I think John Mozeliak in the front office wanted to be uh, in terms of we want to start seeing platoons. We've got pieces on here that work against righties. We've got pieces on here that work against lefties. We, we can't be playing them every day if they are only a 50-50 guy. Carlson's the perfect example of that. Dylan Carlson is a guy that can hit left-handed pitching, so it makes sense to start him against lefties. He cannot, and I repeat, cannot hit right-handers. So he cannot be in the lineup unless somebody absolutely needs a day off against a right-handed pitcher. So somebody on the text line says this, and I, I'm not even saying they're wrong. I'm just trying to, like, maybe I'm wrong on this, and I don't understand it. From the three one four guys, players can't do this. They want consistent playing time. Look at the beginning of the year. The Cardinals platooned everywhere, and they sucked. Am I missing something? They stink down their everyday where, players. <laughs> where did they platoon? Hey, that's not, and which have players place. sucked because of the platoon? I, I'm genuinely asking because maybe I'm misremembering. Like Dylan Carlson was bad because Dylan Carlson cannot hit right-handed pitching yet. Maybe he will be able to at some point in his career. But as of today, guys, Dylan Carlson's a 25 percenter, and what I mean by that is he can play 25 percent of the time. Because the only pitching that he does really well against is lefties. And you see them roughly 25% of the time. So that's when he should be playing right now. I don't want Dylan Carlson in my lineup despite his defensive prowess over Alec Burleson. That is playing, a, that is putting your worst lineup in out there on a day-to-day basis just because you want to find out what Dylan Carlson can be. Now, at this point in the season, you can make an argument for that. But when they were trying to win, there was no reason why you would do that. So who was the guy... That struggled because of the platoons. Am I missing somebody? Was there somebody that that existed for? Like, well, I think what that my assumption is is what that texture's getting to is. I remember early on in the year when they sent. I think it was when they sent Walker down. They said it was to create opportunities so everybody can play every day. I think what happened was I don't think they ran into a platoon issue. I think what they did was they were just rotating guys in and out without. I don't want to say without looking at matchups, but. Like, you're right, Carlson should not have been playing against right-handed pitchers, but they had, like, six outfielders that they were trying to rotate them all in at one time. I think that, that was more of the issue. wasn't a platoon issue, though. I know, that's what I'm saying, is it wasn't a platoon issue, it was making sure everybody's getting playing time. Because, again, if they right. were playing platoons, Carlson remains well, on the bench. To that texter's point, they responded, and basically all but Brendan Donovan are outfielders. Newt Bar, Carlson, O'Neill, Burles, and they said all started the year bad. But if you break that down, Newt Bar started the season injured, and when he came back from his injury, it was a slow play. Tyler O'Neill got called out for dogging it, and then was injured, hadn't seen him since last month. Burleson, I guess you can see. But- he got off to a slow start, but I think that was a slow start. I don't. He's He's had a similar role over the last month when he's been super hot as he did in the first month and, of the season and it's just because he he got hot like he, he the start some of those batted balls started 
dropping into play as opposed to getting caught. And by Brendan Donovan did not start off slow. Brendan Donovan he started, off hot. He started off hot. Didn't he hit a home run the first game? And we were all like, oh, this guy might be a 20 home run hitter. Yeah, we started off the season and the first month I was like, oh, this guy's yeah. amazing. And then he got cold and then he got hot again. And I was like, oh, and, oh Brendan Donovan. And Brendan Donovan did all of that playing different positions because he was getting some outfield time when O'Neill went down and he was playing second base for them. The only one here is Carlson. And I think we all know what Carlson is. Yeah. I, I think in a best case scenario, it this situation ends with players becoming Nolan Gorman or at the beginning of the season, they were platooning Nolan Gorman because they didn't think he could hit left-handed pitching and they gave him some more opportunities some of that was out of necessity because they lacked options to be able to hit against lefties for him and so they gave him those opportunities and guess what he responded super well and he started hitting lefties and now he's in your lineup every single day because of that so it can result in guys getting those opportunities and if they show themselves equip themselves well then they could become everyday players for you the ideal world for every team in Major League Baseball is to have nine every single day players that you put into the exact same spot in the lineup, that you put into the exact same positions, but you've got to pay for that certainty. In order to get nine guys in your lineup every day that you really love in their respective positions, you either have to draft unbelievably well for like a five-year stretch, or you have to have like a $300 million payroll. That's the truth. So it's kind of like filling out your rotation where you're not going to love your number five starter most likely, or your bullpen where... If you get into the seventh or eighth guy into a pin, you feel pretty good about who you are on the opposition and not the team that you're watching that's throwing that seventh or eighth guy out of your pin. That's the same thing in your eight or nine spots in your lineup in terms of who you have in those spots. You're probably going to have to platoon those. The Braves do it. The Dodgers do it. The Rays do it. A bunch of teams across Major League Baseball do it. It's not a bad thing. So I look back at the beginning of the season. I don't think they were struggling because of the platoons. I think they were struggling because Tommy Edmond never really started to hit this season. It never changed, whether he was platooned or playing every day. Dylan Carlson never hit this year. Didn't change because he was playing every day or didn't matter. If he's going up against a right-handed pitcher, he hasn't been very good this year. Tyler O'Neill, I think he was hurt at the beginning of the season, and he didn't tell anybody. And so he was either dogging it or not quite going full full speed because he didn't want to hurt himself more. And so now we're seeing what it looks like when he is fully healthy. I think it was a matter of playing time. These guys just not being able to get into the rhythm of things because they had too many players. That is a too many players issue, not a platoon issue. So if they go into next season and they're platooning two or three spots in their lineup, that is not a bad thing. It's a bad thing when they have seven players for two places in their lineup. And that was my biggest issue with it, where you had like five or six infielders that you were trying to get playing time for, where it was like, what are we doing here? There's certain guys that should be in there every day, and certain guys you look at and you say, they're probably more of a bench bat for us. And then the same can be said about the outfield situation. Like, narrow down the minutia of certain guys that you feel like need at mats. And give them to the guys that are your future. That's the one thing I wanted to see cleared up between now and the end of the season. Know who's tw- know who's 2024 and know who is just 2023. Sure. Another question from the text line, and I think this is a fair one. Define what it means to you to be a platoon in Major League Baseball. If a guy plays one game in left field and he hits leadoff for your team, and then the, uh, the next day you play them in right field and he's hitting seventh, isn't that a platoon? I would not consider that to be a platoon. I would say that's different spots in the lineup depending on matchups. I'm assuming day one, for example, yeah, you're going up against a right-handed pitcher for Lars Nupar. Day two, when he's batting seventh in your lineup, going up against a lefty. You want more at-bats for Lars Nupar against right-handed pitching and less of them against lefties. So against that left-handed pitcher, you're probably leading off with either Carlson or 
Tommy Edmond because they crush left-handed pitching. Against the righty, you want your best players at the top of the lineup to get the most opportunities possible against that guy. Lars Newbar is that player. Donovan was that player. So you want those guys at the top of your lineup. I wouldn't consider that to be a platoon. What is, though, would be like Dylan Carlson playing against a left-handed pitcher and then sitting against the righty until you get to a left-handed pitcher in the bullpen, and that's where he gets his opportunity. That I would consider to be a legitimate platoon. And I think the Cardinals can use those, probably should use those in specific areas. It's just a matter of figuring out who your pieces are, and then they've got to work. When you are when you go into the season and you're platooning one spot, it can fail spectacularly if one of those two players either gets hurt or doesn't hit. If, for example, you went into next year and you're platooning one spot in your outfield with Alec Burleson and Dylan Carlson, and Alec Burleson doesn't hit against right-handed pitching, now you're screwed. Because now you've bet on a left-handed bat against those, and now you just got to play Dylan Carlson every day, and you don't have any production against that right-handed pitching. So that's where it can go south. But in order to get an everyday player, you got to pay for it, either via trade and prospect capital or money. So it, it becomes a really difficult proposition of figuring out which one of those ends up being more valuable. And if you want to pay that money for the everyday player, well, now we're not talking about signing a legitimate starting pitcher. So you got to decide... Where are we willing to spend this money? Coming up next, has Wilson Contreras gotten hot enough to change our belief in him going into next season? T-Bone will tell you why the answer is no. Coming up next here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. It feels like he's settled in. That's the best way I can describe it, where he's not trying to impress or do more than he needs to. He's just taking his at-bats like he normally would, and he just feels like he's settled in and relaxed and just going about his business. But, I mean, we know this guy's a, a threat at the plate, and we're definitely seeing it now. That was Ollie Marmel talking about Wilson Contreras over the last couple of months. Guys, since July 1st, the only qualified hitters that have a better OPS than Wilson Contreras are Freddie Freeman and Corey Seager. Pretty good company to be in if you're Wilson Contreras here in St. Louis. The only qualified catchers this year, all season long, not even qualifying the time, that have a better OPS plus than Contreras are Will Smith, Jonah Heim, and Adley Rutschman. He's fourth in that category. Wilson Contreras has basically been exactly the player the Cardinals signed him to be at this point. He's a below-average defensive catcher, but a well-above-average offensive catcher. Alex, when you look at where he's at today and the player that he's been for the Cardinals, do you suddenly have more faith in what he can be for the Cardinals in 2024 than we had a month or two ago, for example? Absolutely, because he's the third big bat of the trio that we talked about going into the season. He's showing it now, and... It makes sense by the end of the season where he's a lot more comfortable and maybe a little less pressure than what he was dealing with at the beginning of the season, just being on a new team with a new big contract and then on top of everything with the catcher position. But yeah, I mean, being one of the best bats in baseball since June 1st tells you that he's a part of that MV3 you thought was going to be available for this Cardinals team with Goldschmidt and Arenado and Wilson Contreras. So this bat gives me a lot more confidence going into next season because now it's year number two, and we all remember Nolan Arenado went through this too. Like year two on a new team gets a lot easier than year number one. And then on the catching side of things, I think if the bat continues to play this way, I'm not as concerned about the defense behind the plate. Now, sure, it's a little concerning, which is why the backup's going to get more opportunities than originally thought. 
But that bat being so solid for them gives me a lot more confidence moving forward with them. You see, it hasn't changed anything for me because I'm more focused on his defense than I was his bat. I knew his bat was going to come along. I mean, all the underlying numbers suggested that he was like Burleson, hitting into bad luck and that his offense would come. That's why when we did uh, my T-Bone three-on-three bold predictions for the second half, one of them was that he would be the best offensive player on the Cardinals in the second half. It's because the underlying numbers suggested that he can't be what the numbers are showing right now. At some point, things are going to break his way. I mean, he's 99th percentile at max exit velocity. So I, I, I knew the offense would come. I still want to see a little bit more defensively. I think you are right, though. I think with his bat playing more now, I think it's going to – hide some of those defensive efficiencies more it's not as obvious because he is hitting so well but I still want to see some improvements defensively I still want to see him better behind the plate with his framing I think that is something that the Cardinals can work with him on to make him better at so I I still wouldn't say like my opportunistic on Wilson Contreras for next year has changed I think I've had kind of the same viewpoint but I do want to see him better defensively so I I don't know that you're going to see him better defensively I, I think we have to accept that this is who he is now maybe he improves marginally in some areas. Maybe framing gets a little better going into next year. Maybe game calling gets a little better going into next year. One thing that I am curious about, though, is how does their offseason plans with getting stud starting pitching play into this? Because, like, I think no matter where Aaron Nola goes, he's going to be pretty good. I think no matter where Blake Snell goes, he's going to be pretty damn good. I don't think that Wilson Contreras was the reason why Wayno is struggling this year. I don't think that Wilson Contreras was the reason why Steven Matz got off to a slow start. I think that was just going to happen. So I, I do think having stud pitchers in your rotation makes it less worrisome to have Contreras behind the plate on those days. Like when he was in Chicago, they didn't care that he was able to catch John Lester because John Lester was an ace, dude. That guy was a legit front end of your rotation starter, and you never had to worry about whether or not he was going to be prepped for his game. So yeah, go ahead, catch him, Willie. We're going to have you in your lineup. We're going to go two for four with you in there, and we're going to love the fact that your bat is in the lineup as a catcher for us. I think that could help them alleviate some of these defensive concerns as well because the catcher position becomes a little less. It's still important, obviously, but a little less important in terms of the defensive side of things when you've got superstar pitchers at the front end of your rotation, which the Cardinals clearly lacked in a serious way this year. To me, it's just... They seem like they cancel each other out. If this is the bat you get all season. Now, if he goes silent offensively, then yeah, I can understand the struggle with the defense and you probably get the backup in there a little bit more. But if this is the offense that you're getting, maybe a little less tinkered down because this is unrealistic. You're talking about five to 10 games. He's probably going to lose you maybe less than that because of his defense. I would imagine because of this offense that you're seeing, that's going to cancel it out because he's going to probably win you somewhere around that frame of games with his bat. And Again, I think I'm just in the realistic world that this is what I signed up for. I signed up for a mediocre defensive catcher, but I signed up for a guy who was going to be offensively better than most of your guys in the lineup on a nightly basis. Something from the 314. Guys, you don't have to frame a pitch that a batter swings and misses at. That's yeah. something that the yeah. Cardinals are hoping true. for in 2024. Coming up next, speaking of swing and miss, the Cardinals lack it. They want to add it in the offseason. How much is it going to cost them? Plus, Kylie McDaniel of ESPN.com next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. about 
Kylie McDaniel's piece on ESPN.com putting together some of the projections for what these starting pitchers are going to be asking for in free agency. Kylie McDaniel, kind enough to join us now via the 101 ESPN hotline. Kylie, we appreciate the time. As always, man, let's start with the obvious. Right at the top of your list, you've got Shohei Otani, and you say $600 million, not out of the realm of the possible for him. If you're John Mosellock, let's go into fantasy land for a second. You got $55 million to spend, and you can either sign Blake Snell and one of the other top-tier starting pitchers or Shohei. Which route do you go? Uh, I would go with more of a bulk approach. I, I'll actually uh, I'll tip my hand a little bit here. Uh, when, when you guys texted to ask me to come on, I actually did research on this one, uh, not in terms of like reporting and what's going to happen, but just I pulled out my spreadsheets, which is that's my secret superpower. <laughs> putting some names together to try to solve this problem for you. Yes, please. That's a way to BK's heart. There, so Kylie. how'd you do it, Kylie? Well, I don't know if I solved the problem, but this <laughs> is like, this is my thinking. So I went through the last couple of years and saw like, all right, what was the team doing last year that they didn't do this year? And uh, it will probably surprise people to hear that if you go through each individual category of performance, uh, the Cardinals are one win worse in base running, two and a half wins worse on defense, one and a half wins worse at, uh, at the, at the plate hitting and then two and a half wins worse at pitching, which adds up to eight. Uh, probably, the record's probably going to be worse by more than eight runs. That tells you like the underlying stuff is not as much worse as the record will suggest. And I think because you know, so many young players, Mason Wynn hasn't showed up yet. A lot of guys had sort of down years. Uh, I think there's some natural positive regression coming. Like I'd say a couple wins worse uh, on the hitting side, which sort of eats into that eight wins of underlying loss. But then the real question, because I feel like all of the answers, uh, current conundrum uh, on the lineup and bench side, I think they exist internally. You could get cute and maybe, you know, trade Dylan Carlson and get a pitcher. And then maybe all of a sudden, instead of spending the free agent money on pitchers, you could spend it on the hitter. But if I'm trying to be sort of straightforward, if you take what the payroll was before everybody got traded this year and then take all the expiring still on off, that gave me 62 was the number I came up with of money to spend. Um, and it turns out, I think internally, the like three, four, five starter, long reliever, and then all the double A, triple A starting pitching options, they're all there. So I think if you just go to the top of the free agent market and take, for example, I took Aaron Nola, who I have at about 20, 25 mil a year. Uh, Yamamoto, who's the best pitcher from TB, who's 25 years old. So he's like the youngest of all the starting pitching options, which is like a good option. I think he's also about 20 mil a year. And then if you want to beef up the bullpen, go Josh Hader, also about $20 million. You guys add up to about 60 which I think is how much money you have. So if you just stand pat with everyone in the lineup and then add those three guys on top of everyone that's coming back, I don't know if that like solves the problem completely, but I think that goes a long way toward doing it rather than trying to add a bunch of you know, $5, $10 million guy here and there. I think what you need are the, the big talents on top of all this. So, yes, so, yes I know, Kylie. You, you got us way too excited now, Kylie. So, Kylie, just as a follow up there, because you said the three, four, five and the depth you feel like are in the system. Are they in the system for 2024, though? Because Matt's and Michaelis, obviously, but you feel like that number five and depth is in the system to help them compete next year. Yeah, I would say if you go uh, if you go Libertor as like a provisional fifth, Hudson is like the long reliever option or flip those two, depending on how you feel. And then you've got McGreevy, Graceffo, Rom, and Thomas. At least two of those guys will be ready when needed. And then you have the real guys with, like, Hintz, Roby, and Reverse at double A. Uh, so, I, I mean, there's a lot of playoff teams that would love to have that level. If you assume, you know, you sign the three pitchers or choir, whatever, the way I'm describing them, uh, having, like, a solid five and a long reliever and then at least two immediate options in triple A with two more that will be options maybe in the second half 
and then just, let's just say one of those guys in Double A. That's like 10, 11 starters. Like that's what the teams have, and you need like eleven guys that you can sort of depend on, even if it's just like a five and dive guy that can kind of fit and then get it to the bullpen. Which is why I thought hey, it would make some sense that if these aren't going to necessarily be six innings deep, you know, uh, you know, Cy Young vote kind of guys, you probably want to have a little more on the bullpen to feel better about it. So I feel like bring that up. And you could split Hater into two $10 million guys, but I feel like uh, the listeners and myself included tend to like three guys at 20 than six guys at 10 if we're just talking like sort of yearly AAVs on the free agent market. Yeah, it makes it for a more compelling conversation, that's for sure. At the top end of the market, starting pitching-wise, Kylie, a lot of these players are going to be attached to a qualifying offer. In the past, this is not even something that I've really brought up for the Cardinals because, like, it's a late second-round pick that you're talking about. This year, they're going to be picking, like, top five, maybe. How much does that play into your consideration of, like, for example, if you went Aaron Nola versus Lucas Giolito, who's not eligible for the qualifying offer? Yeah, no, that's a—I think well, one of the things I wrote in this article was there are—I think it is—let's uh, see, that would be 14 of my 16 pitchers— uh, and only one of them, I think Hick, or no, Hicks and Hayter are the only two relievers. So it's just like almost entirely starting pitchers as the top 15. So you can very easily do like what actually the Mets did this offseason, not that that's like an endorsement of what they did. <laughs> Their strategy was the guys that will get us a comp pick if they leave, we're not sure about, let them go get the comp pick. Guys that we bring in, bring in guys that don't require a comp pick and sort of use that as like a, you know compensatory pick arbitrage. And I wouldn't say they picked the right guys necessarily, but there is a way to do that. Yamamoto, I think being 25 years old, not being subject to QO, being able to go five or six years and not feeling like you're being irresponsible by taking the youngest guy on the market, that totally makes sense. And yeah, if you wanted to go like, say, bring Hicks back on a big deal, the non-QO version of Hater at some level, and then with all these starting pitchers, I think the most important thing, rather than the QO, uh, is do you have a point of view about why this guy hasn't become what he you know, could be? Like, I think Jack Flaherty, that's a big question. Giolito, that's a big question. Uh, I think Eduardo Rodriguez has been a little bit up and down. How do you feel about that? Uh, one point I made, Aaron Noah had Cy Young level underlying numbers, but has, if you take the three main ERA estimators that are better at pre- predicting ERA year to year, he's underperformed all three of those estimators three years in a row. So if you have a, an idea about why that's happening, then you should just pick him and not worry about anything because you're probably getting a discount. So I think more important than the QO is, is picking out the right guy, but I think Yamamoto will be in huge demand because he kind of fits all those different needs. Kylie, speaking of Nola, because that's been the guy that, that I've talked a lot on this show that I want the Cardinals to target, and, and rightfully so. There is concern over him not panning out to be that guy. If you look at Nola, does that seem to be the best fit for the Cardinals over, say, a Snell or a Giolito? So you guys can maybe speak to this more than I can. I have profiled the Cardinals from outside when it comes to, you know, trading for players, uh, targeting players in the draft, signing guys internationally. And also when they dip into free agency, they tend to not target the stuff guys that are a little bit wild and unpredictable. They tend to target the guys that are a little more of like athletic complete package sort of thing. Obviously like say, you know, Luke Weaver, Jack Flaherty, they tend to be that kind of guy. King Kent is that kind of guy. Matt's yeah. um, kind of guy. Like, so like Blake Snell doesn't really seem to be like a, I wouldn't even say a cultural fit. Like he doesn't seem to be the kind of guy that they value. And I think he'll be a little more expensive than the other two guys I just mentioned. So I just kind of assumed he was, whereas Aaron Nola, Eduardo Rodriguez, even Julio Urias, like they feel a little bit more Cardinals to me as that also kind of matters because it's, it's been the same people this whole time. It's not like a bunch, they've changed GMs three times while this has been happening. 
So it's interesting, Kylie, because I feel like philosophically, that's something that they're trying to figure out right now, because if you listen to what they say, they say they are starting to value swing and miss more. And that means that some of the other stuff, the erratic nature of ball strikes, like all of that, maybe that becomes secondary. But then you look at who they go out and acquire, and it's still a lot of the guys that do have more of the profile that they've had in the past with maybe a slight uptick in the swing and miss stuff. So Aaron Nola would be like, exactly what you would think that that would profile to be. Uh, It just really depends on, do you listen to what they say? Do you listen to what their actions are? Their actions seem to lead me to believe that Aranola is exactly the profile they would look at though. Well, and I would also say, well, I was, you know, talking about if you have a point of view on these guys, I would think those teams don't, or they would have already tried to acquire these guys or would have like figured it out with their own pitchers. Like Jack Flaherty's on this list of guys, like, can you crack exactly what's going on with him? You'd think if the Cardinals were just like world-class best in the world at this, they probably figured out Jack Flaherty. Um, the other thing would be because there's like seemingly like 13 different guys that are all like roughly comparable starting pitchers. You can also just sort of sit back and be like, ah, the 13, we think these three were the best. And then all of a sudden one of them gets, you know, crazy overheated bidding and they go for twice what you think they're worth. You can also just kind of sit back and wait for them because like the last guy in this group uh, is like Sonny Gray, Marcus Stroman, Flaherty and Lorenzen. And the top guys are like Snell, Yamamoto and Nola in my mind. And, like, I don't feel like expectations for those guys year to year are, like, wildly different. Lorenzen, I think, is probably maybe not in that group. He just happens to be ranked after these guys. But all the guys start about $50 million going up to, like, 130 I don't feel like the, like, reward risk profile is wildly different. So you can also kind of wait for the market to come to you some. And if, like, say Jordan Montgomery is not getting a ton of interest and you can get him for, you know, four times 15 or, you know, something that seemingly is below the market, um, then just go to that because, like, he's not going to be totally different than, like, Julio Urias, who is like four years younger, but like I don't have like a much outlook for him over the next five years because you're kind of getting all of these guys roughly at a retail price on the open market. Everyone's got a shot at him. And so whoever happens to be on like a slight discount or who isn't sort of overpriced, I think is like, you know, an important variable to consider that we obviously don't know right now. So Kylie, every pitcher comes with risk, right? We, we know that whether it's they fall off a cliff or they get hurt, there are real questions about whether or not the, the guy that you sign is going to work out two, three, four years down the road. There other kind of risk that you bring up, though, with this year's free agent market is Yamamoto. He's 25 years old. He's been pitching in Japan. Everybody seems to love the guy. Give us a little bit of his scouting report from what you know about him. If the Cardinals were to sign him this offseason, what would they be getting? So there hasn't been, I mean, obviously it seems like there's been like an NPB pitcher of note coming over like every year or two. There hasn't quite been one this like uh, the set of uh, qualities. Uh, so he's 25. So he's being posted. You can start posting, getting the fee for, as the MPB team once they turn 25, which I think he hasn't even turned 25 yet, but he will like next month. This is the first time that they can sort of market him and get full value for him. Uh, he is five, but I wouldn't call him small. And I talked to one scout who was in Japan and said, I think he might be six foot. Like, I think he might be like <laughs> underrepresenting how tall he is. Um, and the sort of scouting report is he's incredibly athletic, repeats his delivery well, really throws strikes, executes. If you want to compare him to Kodai Senga, the most recent guy to come over, Senga's like a, you know, stuff, fringy command, but gets it done. Uh, Yamamoto is more of like an above average plus command and also is 25 and is the athlete to sort of suggest, again, similar to Aaron Nola, where he can continue doing this and sort of figures out a way to make the most of it. 
Uh, and it's still sitting, you know, 93, 95, touching 97. Has that plus splitter that you sort of expect to see from a lot of MVP pitchers. But it has, you know, above average slider and curveball and above average fastball velocity. Like, he sort of checks all the boxes. But because of the age, athletic command profile, he seems like about as safe as you're going to get with a floor of like a, you know, sort of reliable, you know, Michaelis kind of pitcher, but could really be that, you know, you know, one of the better pitchers to come over for MVP in a while. Like, you know, I don't think comparing him to say like Daisuke, when Daisuke came over, uh, that was obviously a while ago, but like the hype was this guy might be a frontline guy. And he kind of was for a few years. Like, I don't think he's a wildly different talent in Yamamoto. Is it reasonable in your mind, Kylie, to expect the Cardinals to sign Nola and Yamamoto or two pitchers in that criteria this offseason? Do you think it's being unfair to say that that's the type of thing that they should be doing? Uh, I think that is the sort of easiest answer. I would uh, I would surmise if you made me guess, it will probably be more complicated than like we have sixty mil. Let's go sign three pitchers for twenty million a year. Like that's like a that's like a it's like almost come up with that at some level. Doesn't mean it's wrong, but it is very simple. Sure. Uh, I would imagine there are some ideas that they had internally that like hey, this hitter we think is a little overvalued in the market. We don't think he's going to get better. Maybe we can flip a pitcher, sign two pitchers instead of three, and then maybe sign a you know, $5, $10 million complimentary, you know, like an Adam Duvall type or something to fill out the hole that was left when we traded this hitter. Like I would imagine there's a, like a little more nuance and a couple more options and sort of knowing the trade market better than any of us can right now because we don't know what all the turn down trades were. Um, I think that's probably more realistically what the answer is, uh, but I also don't think just because the answer I gave that I came up with in about 15 minutes is simple means that it's wrong because like I, you guys like lit up like these players like we know who they are you kind of know what the team needs like I don't think this is like any more complicated than that like you know, with a different answer but uh, yeah I don't think the complexity means it's a better answer final question that I've got for you last week we talked to Eno Saris and he brought up the name Shota Imanaga the other pitcher coming over from Japan potentially that's subject to the posting fee as well uh, when you talk to people about him and what he could command this offseason he's a little older going to be 30 years old next year uh, what do you think the contract looks like for him and what's your scouting report on him yeah he would be the uh the sort of cheaper uh you know less raw stuff like doesn't quite blow you away option a little more of the traditional crafty lefty with really good control um and it would probably be in the you know if we're estimating say like the 40 50 million dollar area you know multi-year deal guy you can reliably get innings from i would imagine most pitchers that you think are you know a little older don't have like the huge stuff aren't going to be frontline guys but you got to give them multiple years because there's some track record and reliability but you're not getting to $20 million a year. So certainly if there is like, yeah, again, the, the the thing I prescribe is 20 million a year. If you want to like sort of dial that back a bit, he would be one of the options along with, you know, say like Tyler Molly from Minnesota. Um, if you want to go with like a cheaper option in relief, you got Kimbrel. I don't know how you guys feel about that. Uh, you know, James Paxton, like there's some sort of mid-market options that I think could, if you in the right year, they stay healthy, they sort of produce how you expect, uh, could give you like comparable um, performance without having to go multiple years, $100 million and all that kind of stuff. Kylie, thank you for solving all of the world's problems, specifically here in St. Louis. <laughs> we can't wait to talk with you again going into the offseason about how the Cardinals end up signing James Paxton and Sonny Gray. Looking forward to that. Yeah, it's not the Nobel Peace Prize, but maybe I get some St. Louis-style pizza or something out of it. Uh, we'll give you that and T-Ravs, Kylie. If you get both of those guys here, we'll give you both. Free pass to the zoo as well. Yeah. Kylie, appreciate the time as not always, parking, man. though. Yeah, I know the agents. I'll make some calls. <laughs> Got it. That's Kylie McDaniel joining us here on 101 ESPN. Always appreciate him hopping on with us. Alex, your thoughts on his plan to solve the Cardinals this offseason? He solved it. And, you know, I've been pushing back about signing both of your ones and twos and free agency and 
not making that trade for that young guy. But if you go get Yamamoto and Nola, yeah, I'm on board with it. By the way, the the other uh, pitcher, Imaniga, I butchered that. <laughs> Apologize. Are you rooting he, for them not to sign him just so we don't have to Probably, yes. But he sounds a lot like KK. He he sounds a lot like Michaelis. Like, it's, sounds huh. like the Cardinals. I, actually, yeah. I was going to say, when I actually thought he was lesser than Michaelis. When he was describing him, I was like, oh, so this is who the Cardinals are signing. Yeah, well, that's that's a not a slightly lesser version than the really good young guy that's coming over. That's going to cost okay a lot of that. money who p- pitches as like a really solid number three. Not a ton of upside, not a whole lot of downside either, though. Look, you kind of know what you're getting. Stop. Yeah, that's the Cardinals. Look, man, stop snorkeling in the in the shallow end and start scuba diving in the deep end. You just come up with it? I did. Go get Yamamoto. Stop swimming for the koi fish. Thanks, T-Bone. That was well done. I need you to snap closer to the microphone, though. People can't hear it. Uh, I do yeah, not like you. the idea of signing Josh Hader. That, yeah, no, I'm, I'm <laughs> out on that. I would not do that. That is the part of his plan that I was like, mm-mm, nope, nope, nope. Like, I would rather sign John Brebbia than... Uh... I'd do John Brebbia and mm-hmm. Joe Kelly. Let's bring them both back. Mm, I don't know about David Kelly. Robertson. Yeah, ooh, now we're talking. What's Russ Springer doing these days? Who? <laughs> Exactly. I I love what his plan started with, which was get two big time starters and figure the rest out as the offseason goes along. That's that's the plan. Like, I don't at this point, I don't even really care who the names are like Blake Snell, Lucas Giolito, uh, Yamamoto, Aaron Nola. Like, I've Shohei. got <laughs> I've got my preferences on who they go out there and get, but they should be swimming in that pool. They should be scuba, snor- diving? Uh, scuba diving. Come on, man. Stop snorkeling, man. Stop snorkeling. <laughs> Enough with the snorkeling. Nobody likes to snorkel. You go under, you think you're fine, and then you swallow salt water. Just scuba nah. dive. Put the expensive gear on and get in there. Do not go in that machine that takes you down to the Titanic. Yeah. Don't risk implosion. <laughs> that <laughs> is signing James Paxton and Sonny no, Gray. that's signing Shohei. Don't do that. <laughs> I like the idea of Shohei, but don't do yeah. that. Okay. Don't I, sign the $60 million player. Get two really good starters. I mean, so I'll take the Paxton back. In this com- that Paxton's just broken. That's why, I went, that's why I went with that reference, because it's not going to hold up. No. no. Don't sign. Don't just go out there because it's easy and re-sign Jack Flaherty. Or Jordan Don't Montgomery. sign Michael Lorenzen because he's coming off of a really solid season. Oh, that's what I'm like that with Rodriguez. Don't, don't sign, sign Rodriguez. my guy Kyle Gibson. You don't need that anymore. You needed that two years ago. Gibby's done. His his era here in St. Louis is over. Oh, don't give up. Kinta Maeda, no. Stop it, Mo. Oh. Stop it. Engine Ryu coming off of Tommy John. No, we just like got nailed starts. in the knee last night, and he's out again. Everybody oh, asks yeah. what Gersh does. Gersh's job this offseason should be slapping Mo's hand when he mentions one of the mid-tier starters. Put no. the phone down. No. We're not you don't talking pee in the basement. Alex, you've got two dogs. You know what this is like. No. <laughs> no, not the slapping. Go outside. The, the little, like... You look at them and they know. They know when they've crossed the line. So does that mean Michael Gersh should rub Moe's face in you like the paper? You don't do that. We don't do that anymore, man. Oh. It's 2023. So when Moe's holding a document that says, let's sign Sonny Gray, Gersh should say, no, Moe, no. <laughs> you go outside. Mo. we talked about this scuba diving, not snorkeling. That's the off-season the, plan. What if Kirsch walks in with scuba gear for a day one of free agency? All right, Mo, let's go swim. And Mo sitting at a, his desk with the goggles and the snorkel. What do you mean, Mike? Damn you, a, scuba Mike. Damn you, scuba Mo. 
I just had a great image in my head. Somebody that's really great on Photoshop. Make I need that. you to tweet something out with Mo and Scuba Gear. That's all I want. Scuba Mo, damn you! Coming up next, Joe Jory here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Let's open it up. The junk drawer with BK and Ferrario. Brought to you by Fenton Bar and Grill. Best trashed wings in Missouri. Dine in. Carry out. Seven days a week. Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. Let's dive into the juncture. Alex, what do you got for us today? All right, so I need some help from our kind audience that uh, always loves to help us here on BK and Ferrario, and I need help from both of you guys. So I was having this conversation uh, over the weekend with my wife. I think I want to get a tattoo. Oh. And I've never dived into this before because I just, I, I always say, like, I've always wanted one, but I never know what to get. Sure. But now that I have two daughters, I'm like, okay, well, I get their names because that would make sense, and it's not weird. It makes sense. So. Don't you have a cross on your necklace yeah so i, I get a cross with their names on it that's what that's what i wanted to do but here's the problem get it on your ass there, look man my daughter's names does not deserve to go on my ass okay all right your, side. your name your deserves to go on my ass but you're dead. i would like that i don't want to be there <laughs> just write daddy next to it just write daddy next to it anyway we can do that on the show no we're on youtube now i'll bring it up now youtube live now people 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 don't need that on YouTube. Come on now. Somebody just sent us a picture of Mo and Scuba Gear. It's fantastic. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but he looks so angry, and it's fantastic. Anyway, I need help. So I've always wanted to do it on, like, my bicep, like on the inner portion of my bicep. And I told my wife this, and I'm like, but I got, we're going to get two names. So I said, rather than me just doing it on one, what if I did it on, like, a name on both arms? And then underneath it, it says, no ragrats. <laughs> ragrats? Have you seen the... Oh, I, I was I was thinking Rugrats, not regrets. No, regrets. Anyway, she she immediately said no. She goes no. I go why? She goes that looks tacky. I go does it really? She goes just do it on one. She said put both of them on one arm. She said that just looks weird to have both arms. So my question is, does it look tacky for me, who is a very skinny Caucasian individual who doesn't look like somebody who has tattoos, to get a tattoo on both of my inner biceps? Anybody can look like they should get tattoos. Huh. I mean, T-Bone could get a tattoo. It wouldn't surprise me at all. I'd love it if T-Bone Maybe got Maybe I a, have a tattoo. I'd love it if T-Bone got a face tap. He got a tattoo with cinnamon on his ass. Not like the... <laughs> like the name cinnamon? Yep. Boy, that is a bet that went awful, I would imagine. No. He wanted Finished it. football. So <laughs> he, wanted, he wanted cinnamon printed on his ass. Yeah, that's what he that's said. That's what Tanner said. He told me that two weeks ago. He said it in confidence, and I'm betraying that confidence Dude, right now. Dude, that's weird. It's a thing that happened. That's weird, I man. Weird you, man. I'm sorry. Somebody texted and said, just start working out. Yeah, but the easier thing is for me to get a tattoo that I don't need to work out I would, for. I would say just do them both on one arm. That's what you think? Just do yeah. them on one arm? I think you can do it on both. I that, think it's more symmetrical. And she goes, well, what, what if we have another kid? Because we're t- we, we want to try for one more at some point. And she goes, well, you have another one. I said, well, Man, I can put that elsewhere. I mean, if you're going to do one on each arm, then you almost have to finish with an even number. Yeah, you got to have four kids now. Yeah. You're signed by both, both legs too. or yep. both butt yeah. cheeks? Both legs. Well, both legs, probably. Okay. So you think it's okay to do both? Because if I do it and she sees it and doesn't like it, well, now I'm Are screwed. You, I guess one thing, though, that I'm wondering, 
Like, are you getting the cross or are you just getting the names? I was just going to do the names. I okay, was going to have somebody say, design. You can't do the cross. No, yeah, yeah. I can't do the cross. I was going to do, like, somebody just designed, like, the name. Not, it's not going to be huge, like, covering it. It's just going to be, you know, smaller on there, but... I would workshop it a little bit, but I think you can make. You it think work. you can make it work on both arms? I can specifically. Well, yes. no, you can't. You can't. <laughs> I would be I happy to tattoo too. your arms. I think we should all do tattoos. I want like a tattoo. A I, I'm like you though. I don't know what That's I want. That's the other thing. Somebody just texted and said, "Just a heads up, tattoo sucks. It's a very I tender say, spot." I thought that one was very hurt, painful. Here's the thing, this though. Is part of why I want him to do it. Everywhere. No. <laughs> You're going to get a tattoo. It's going to be painful. So that's why I'm like, I I figure I'm just going to go through the pain no matter what. But somebody said, as somebody with tattoos, if you get it under your arm and you can handle it, you can get them anywhere. See, I'm not I'm not worried about the pain side of it, though. I'm more worried about it looking tacky. Say that now. I, so I, I understand see that. You sitting there just not. Really but here's the thing: it's not going to be something that takes up the entire arm to where it's going to be a long process. Like the pain factor, yes, it's going to be there. It's a long process, no matter how big it is. Yeah. Right. But I mean, if we're just putting down like nothing special, just writing the name on the arm, BMBK could totally do that. Yeah, no, I'm not. Somebody gonna... said I would consider putting it on your chest instead of on your arm. Mm. That was the other thing too. But my chest is even skinnier than my biceps. <laughs> like I don't, I don't need that. You're also pretty hairy. Very true. And it just gets hairier. Like in, like the lower you go, the, the way, legs are real hairy, so I can't do that. My chest hair never grew back on the spot that you... Uh... Mine didn't either. Really? Yeah. Mine like scarred. I've got, I've got well, a bear patch. Kate, Katie basically told me I did that waxing very incorrectly. I'm, yeah. She's like, first of all, you waxed the spot like three three times yep. and you weren't supposed to do that. But okay, so I'm, just, I'm seeing a lot of people saying like, it's going to be painful, but it doesn't look tacky. There's a couple people that say it looks tacky. So technically, you've just made this even more difficult text line. So I appreciate the effort. Coming up next, would you be open to the idea of signing two starters instead of signing one and trading for another? We'll talk about that next and why I'm coming around to the idea here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. He's Alex Ferrario, that's Tanner Hendricks, and I'm Brandon Kylie. So earlier today, Alex, we caught up with Kylie McDaniel, one of my favorite writers for ESPN.com. And he said, guys, before I came on, I spent 10 minutes and I fixed the Cardinals for you. We said, okay, how'd you do it, Kylie? He said, I signed two starting pitchers at the top of the market and I got Josh Hader. Damn, if it only takes 10 minutes, this should be easy offseason for me. And we said, Kylie, we love you. That sounds wonderful. Can you please put in a good call to John Mosaylock for us? The reason why I bring that up, and by the way, if you missed any of our conversation with Kylie McDaniel, check it out on the podcast page after the show today at 101ESPN.com or the free 101 ESPN app. It's presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers. Alex, I think I've convinced myself that the best course of action for the Cardinals this offseason is not to trade for a starter, but instead to go ahead and sign two of them. I would rather, even if it means the qualifying offer is attached to one of those players, like you sign Aaron Nola, for example, and Yamamoto, the 25-year-old starter that's coming over from Japan. Those are the two guys that you target at the front end of your rotation. So you're giving up the second-round pick for Nola, and you're probably signing them for a combined 45 to $50 million. I would rather do that and give up the second-round pick than give up Gorman, Donovan, or Newt Barr for one of the pitchers that we've been talking about, like one of the back-end guys from Seattle, one of the back-end guys from Miami, etc. I would rather go get the proven starter. Because I don't know what Brian Wu is going to be three years from now, or even next year. I don't know what Edward Cabrera is going to be next year. I don't know what any of these guys are going to be, honestly. Even my boy Clark Schmidt, 
Now, if I could get him for Dylan wow. Carlson, would I take him as my number five starter over Dakota Hudson? Yeah, I would. But if it's going to cost me going out there and trading like one of my big time bats for one of these number two, probably closer to three or four starters, I think I'd rather just go get Aaron Nola. I would rather just go get Yamamoto on the open market and know what I'm getting going into next year. How do you feel about that, about the signing versus trading for the second pitcher that you acquired this offseason? I'm with you as long as it's the right guy you're signing. Uh, Like, what I don't want them to do is sign the top guy, and then the second guy they sign is James Paxton or Sonny Gray, and say, I hate the idea of James Paxton. Just stop already. That's my problem. If you're getting a one and two, I'm A-OK with you doing that, and especially like Yamamoto is best-case scenario because you're not only signing a guy who could be your number two, but you're signing a young guy that you're going to have control over for the next five years as a number two. Let's go about this this way. Let's say Yamamoto's the guy they sign no matter what because he is scoffery. You don't have to give up a second-round pick for him. You're just you're signing Yamamoto this offseason. Yeah. He is your first option into the free agent market. Sign him to a five-year deal, twenty-five mil a year. You feel great about it, so right? So then, if it's Nola or Snell as that other guy you sign, and you're they're both attached to the qualifying offer, so you have to give up a second-round pick for either of those two guys. Fine, and that I think is the best thing for the Cardinals because you're not trading away what's at least made you somewhat competitive this season, which is your offense. You're not dealing any of that away other than certain guys that you don't see fit for the team next year, like the Carlsons or the Edmonds, if he's not here and that brings in you more depth. But the only way I'm cool with that is you going out there and getting Nola or Snell or Giolito, if you want to talk about that. And then the Yamamoto kid agreed. That's the only way I'm good with it because otherwise sign one of them and trade for the other agreed. Because then you've got the upside baked into the guy that you're signing or trading for on the market. And that guy's probably cost controlled. Yeah. You're not trading for a guy that's making $20 million, I wouldn't think, unless it ends up being Tyler Glass now, right? That, yeah. The likelihood is you're probably bringing in somebody that is right now a number three and projects to be better over time as they continue Making to like develop in the big one leagues. to five mil, maybe. Yeah. Maybe. So you're not paying them a whole lot this upcoming season. And maybe that then opens up some flexibility to add multiple relievers to the bullpen. I could see how you end up getting down that path. I would just rather have the certainty. Yesterday on the fast lane, they talked a lot about what it means to to have certainty in your lineup. I think the Cardinals are lacking certainty in their pitching staff. And I think specifically in their rotation right now. And I don't think Brian Wu gives you that. I don't think going out there and getting Edward, Edward Cabrera gives you certainty next year. I think it gives you upside. But the certainty is still lacking compared to an Aaron Nola or a Blake Snell. I know what those guys are when healthy. I don't know what these guys are that are young pitchers. Next year, they could totally go through a sophomore slump. We've seen this in St. Louis, where a guy comes up and in year one is really, really good. Position player or pitcher. Year two, there's some struggles that take place. The league now has a little bit more film on them. They've adjusted. They know what to expect out of him. And year two is some learning curve there. So I would rather go down this route of um, finding a way to get the stud guy that's at the front end of my rotation. There is this question, though, and I think it's a fair one. From the 980, guys, I'm with you on signing a pitcher instead of trading for one, but then you still have a logjam in the outfield and at DH that you have to clear up. Agreed. And what I'm doing there, if I end up going that path of finding my number one and two starters via free agency, is trading for upside guys that are in the lower minors. I know that sounds scary, and it is scary to trade like Tyler O'Neill or Dylan Carlson for lottery tickets, but you could get something a little better maybe, higher upside, 
by trading them for guys that are further away from the big leagues than by trading them for somebody that is currently in the big leagues. You're not getting much for Tyler O'Neill on a one-year deal. You're not getting a ton right now for Dylan Carlson with the way that he's hit over the last two seasons. It's just not happening. So maybe you give yourself the upside of somebody that's a little further away instead of trying to get somebody that right now is in the big leagues. And the other thing I don't mind on that sense, too, is if you're trading away a Carlson or an O'Neill is looking at upside for a position player also. I mean, I know you want a lot of pitchers, but if there's an outfielder available that's been in AAA, that could be somebody that is the option. If somebody goes down, let's be honest, if you're not trading O'Neill, he's going to be gone for a while. You've got Burleson. Who's that guy that's not Oscar Mercado next season that could be available? If you could get that in a trade, I'm not opposed to that. But all of this is fine as long as you get the one and two. The starting point is, no pun intended, the starting rotation. Yeah, and I, I I, would still be open, and I don't think they would do this, but I would still be open to, if you sign that one and two, like you said, Yamamoto and uh, who's the other one you said? Snell. Snell, Giolito, someone like Nola, that. One of those you guys. make those two signings, I would still be open to conversations of moving one of your core position players to go get a guy that has the upside of a three. Oh, interesting. Because I, I think you load up that rotation. I'm I mean, if you, you if you have a rotation where – Sure, let's say you part with, I'm going to use Newpar's name here, and look, that opens a hole in the outfield. But again, I'm, it's so one of those works out of snowball effect. Here, but I'm curious your thoughts but on it. The reason I would do it, I mean, I've got a front-end rotation of Snell. I've got a front-end rotation with Yamamoto, who, let's be honest, though he is a good pitcher over in Japan, we don't know how that will translate when it comes over here to the big leagues. And I've got a guy that projects to move up in my rotation as years go on as he develops like a, a Brian Wu. All the while while you have Michaelis. With Michaelis and Matt's on the back end there, and Wu would not be making a lot of money. In fact, he's probably not going to start making money till Michaelis is off the books, Matt's is off the books, and hopefully by that point I've got hints that's come up through the system and I've got a number, another number five that you have developed through your system. I like that idea because I don't think the pendulum sw- – the whole fear of trading from the position group is you swing that pendulum that the Cardinals have fallen victim to in the last what was it, decade where they have too much offense but not enough pitching and then they trade from the offense and then they get too much pitching and not enough offense. I think you have such a great position core right now. You can pluck one guy from that, and it's not going to be a significant, uh, significant loss for the Cardinals. Now, I understand what you're saying of – well, you're more than likely going to lose a trade when you trade a position player for a pitcher. But I think if I have a rotation and I can dream on what Wu will look like as a, and I'm just using him as a place filler here. Look at him as a three right now, but he could develop into an even better arm while I'm still in the midst of contracts of Snell and Yamamoto. That, that is a Braves rotation. That is a Dodgers rotation. That is a playoff winning rotation. And that's why I'm open to doing both of what you just said, signing the two top end guys while still trading from the position group to add a guy that's got a much higher ceiling than a Clark Schmidt or a James Paxton I'm, on the I'm, market. I'm with him there. I mean, it, now my exception to that is I'm not trading Gorman in that scenario. Like I was open to Gorman before, but if I've got my one and two, I'm not Gorman's trading Logan Gorman. Gilbert. If, if yeah. Gilbert's name becomes a conversation, that's how you end up yeah. with a Nolan Gorman. Otherwise, like Brian, Wu, I'm not trading Nolan Gorman. He's no. going to be a 40 home run hitter for Brian Wu or Bryce Miller. But if I mean, they, I'm not doing that. But if they call about Edmund or Newt Barr or Burleson or Donovan, I'm still going to listen to that because I don't think you're hurting yourself offensively to the point that it's going to plague you in 2024 and beyond. And I'm making my rotation that much more dominant. Set Edmund and Burleson to the side. They're not even in this conversation. You're not getting those guys that we just talked about with either of those. But Newt Barr and Donovan, maybe. Maybe those would get you into that conversation. I wouldn't trade them. 
I, I would just say I'm going into next season with Newbar and Donovan in my lineup because having those guys means that my lineup is close enough to the Braves and the Phillies. It's close enough to whatever the Dodgers lineup ends up being next year because it's going to be better than what it is this year. They're going to probably sign like Shohei Otani, and if they don't, guys, they have so much money available this offseason. They are going to make some big moves. Like we said earlier, Wander Franco, we're going to see him uh, against the Cardinals. I think the Dodgers are a prime candidate to trade for Wander Franco if he becomes available in the offseason. And they'll be a much better team, whether it's that move or something else that they decide to do this offseason. Your lineup has to be able to be comparable to these other teams. I think if you go out and get the starting pitchers that we're talking about, the two free agents, your starting rotation suddenly matches up really well against these other teams in the National League. Go look at the Braves rotation. Go look at their top three specifically. If you end up adding Yamamoto... Say it's Aaron Nola and you've got Michaelis and Mats. That top four is totally fine going up against any of these other top four that you're looking at in the National League right now. So I I think that you need the position player depth because of how excellent the position players are on some of these other top contenders in the National League. I think we overestimate how good a number four starter is on most of these teams no, around I, the league. I agree with that, but I don't think you can ever have enough pitching. And, and that's why, like, if I can get even more arms that have upside and trade one position player to go get it. I'm down to do it. And the other thing, too, and I don't even think – I know we talked about this in the office, so if I'm jumping the gun, I apologize. I would look at it and I would say, you still have your core five on this team, kind of what the Phillies have, even though you are trading a large new part potentially to go get another high upside arm in a Brian Wu that can come in and be a three. I Look, I agree. Michaelis, Matt's perfect three fours for you in a rotation. Even better if Michaelis is a four because he's overqualified to be a four. And I added an arm with upside that can develop and become even higher up in my rotation in terms of being a one or two while I've still got ones and twos on my roster. I don't think you can ever have enough pitching in terms of what the upside is for those arms. Yep. I I would love to have all of those arms that you're talking about. I just don't want to trade my position player depth if I don't have to. If I can go sign one or two of these guys that we're talking about, I would just go do that. And then honestly, I would just sign somebody else. That's like that lower level potential upside candidate. I don't know who that player specifically will be this year, but go sign somebody that you believe has the potential to be next year's version of Michael Lorenzen, whoever that guy is in your mind. Coming up next, 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service X line. You give us a scenario. We'll tell you if we're betting it or forgetting it here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Vegas sets them up and we're here to make the call. It's PK and Ferrario's bet it or forget it on 101 ESPN. One four three nine nine and nine six four six is the Air Comfort Service text line for bet it or forget it, guys. Bet it or forget it. Aaron Nola is a Cardinal in twenty twenty four. I'll say bet it. I think he's the most likely one that they'll be able to acquire via free agency. I'm just not sure you're going to be able to get Blake Snell unless you really overpay. Lucas Giolito seems to be a, a coast kind of player, and maybe Aaron Nola is, but. He seems like the most likely one. And if a team comes calling when you're 31 years old, willing to give you five plus years, I think Naranola takes that. Can I, can I have you hold me to something? Oh boy. No, I don't, I don't want to touch you, man. I'm going to be excited if they sign Aranola. Oh no, you're not. Don't, don't let me veer from that. Don't do the match where it's like, yeah, you'll complain. No, this will be different. This would be, I mean, this would be the biggest free agent signing they've ever made. I'm going to be excited yeah. about it. I mean, so you went to the market. They, if they sign Aaron Nola, they deserve credit. 
for that. Hell yeah. Now, it's not exactly the profile that we all thought that they would go out there and get. Shocker. But I don't but, know if that player is even ever available. Like Snell. I mean, he is. If you want swing and miss, there's nobody better in Major League Baseball other than Spencer yeah, Strider. Then I got to hear when it comes to swing and then miss. Then I got to hear people whine about all of his walks and the five innings it. and all of that. Like, I, I get it. But if they sign Aaron Nola, I'll be excited about it because he's a really good pitcher, man. I can have my questions about is he a one? Is he a two? He's a really good starting pitcher that helps you immensely going into next what season. What would you be more excited about? I'm going to forget. I'm going to bet it, by the way. I think Aaron Nola. Just spending a few weeks thinking about this makes the most sense for the Cardinals. What would you be more excited about, Nola signing or Yamamoto signing? I think you could dream more about Yami, Yamamoto, about Especially what he for can 25. be. Because, like, if I mean, we've seen what Kodai Senga has been for the Mets this year, it's been really good for them. Like, if you get a guy that projects to be better than Kodai Senga, which apparently he does, and Kodai Senga has a 3.2 ERA this year. That's a number one. So I, I think it's more exciting for Yamamoto because of what's left upside-wise there. And he's 25 years old. That's the other thing. Nola will be 31 next year. That's what I want from them, too. Sign a two who could be a number one. Yeah. I think that is the best case. Like, if you could tell me you can sign any two pitchers, any combination of two pitchers on the market this year, it's Yamamoto and Nola. See, I, be my top I would probably be more excited about the Nola signing because I know what Nola is. And though, like, this goes classic, classic case of me and yeah. T-Bow classic looking at floor always dreaming about what the upside is. And then me always Except looking at Zach the floor. Thompson. Yeah. Or Carlson. Or anybody else in the yeah, minor man, leagues. You only dream on like one or two players. Actually. Or Luke and Baker. What do you mean? Yeah. Yeah. Not looking Luke at the upside Donovan. of those guys. Those are the guys that you dream on here. Gorman. Walker. Yeah, you tried to trade Gorman last year, though. Yeah, you did try to trade Gorman in the offseason for you a catcher. To, I tried to get a Sean Murphy, guys. You, you considered moving on from Walker, too. But no, well, I would no. be. No, I didn't. Yeah, you didn't. Yeah. I said, who would you trade Walker for? And then we all decided, like, Spencer Strider, and that's it. I said nobody. Me, too. Um, you did make it very clear that but I, was nobody. I would forget it. I don't think they're going to sign <laughs> Nola. I think he probably is their favorite target. Never an answer for that. Who would you trade Jordan Walker for? Nobody. I, I'll forget it. I don't think Nola will be the target because he's got the QO, and I think I think the QO is going to push them away from Nola well, and Giolito, Snell. Well, then you're going to get Lucas yeah. Giolito and James Paxton. Hey, I will be excited about Giolito. He's been my target since what the first month of yeah. the Can't season. Can't wait for those nine earned runs and three innings that he gives up. Alex, what do you got for better? Ooh, bet, Braves. bet it or forget it. The Cardinals miss out on signing a top pitcher or the Blues decide to not trade what any of their defensemen. Playing? I'll play it. Bet it or forget it. <laughs> you totally forgot. Oh, yeah, I did. I did. I only need one scenario here. Okay, bet it or forget it. The, the Cardinals miss out on one of the starting pitchers. Uh, bet it. It's a Cardinals move. Or they were involved. Is so it like, a Cardinals move, or does the pitcher say, I'm not coming to St. Louis? When you say Both. this, you're saying that the best pitcher they sign is in what category? Tier two, I'm Sonny assuming. Sonny Gray. I'm forgetting it. I think they're going to sign somebody better than that. But what if the pitcher doesn't come? What if the pitcher says no? What if you get three then guys that say no? Then they failed. you got to offer enough money. Like, you got to get stupid with this, man. Ooh. you got to be willing to pay what makes you want to throw up. you got to get to that puke point that they always talk about. And if you can't, then you got to offer everything in order to get a number one or two starter this offseason. Like, now you have to tell, now you have to make the godfather offer that makes the Mariners say no. You got to make the godfather offer that you go to the Guardians with and make, like, BB say no. 
for them to say no about BB. Like, th that's what you got to do. So it's easier to make that happen on the free agent <clears throat> market where it's just about dollars. I, I'm forgetting. I think they're going to get one of those top end starters this offseason. I really do believe it. I'm going to bet it. <laughs> I... <laughs> I can't. I look. I want to buy in so much, but I they got to do it first, and that's the thing is they always kind of settle for that second tier when it comes to pitching. And though they've said they want to change the model, the fact that they are looking at Nola potentially as the top target, which I think is happening, yeah, sure, you change the model a little bit, but he fits kind of more as what Michaelis is. So I, that's not changing the model that much to me. That that's kind of adjusting the model. So I. I'm going to bet it. I can see where they totally miss out with one of the top arms and they settle for the second tier. I'm forgetting it. They're getting one. T-Bone? Bet it or forget it. The Cubs win the NL Central. They're coming, Oh, I'm man. betting it. The Cubs are coming. The Cubs are coming. The Cubs are coming. Hey, Chicago, what do you whoa, say? Whoa, oh, whoa, Too soon? Jesus, you like channeled your inner... Oh my God, man. I don't even know. Um, Andy Williams there. Oh, I thought it was Harry Carey. No. Hmm. You didn't sound like a buddy. I, I guess I'm going to bet this... Yeah. I can't believe I'm saying it. Uh, I, Milwaukee yeah. sucks. Cincinnati sucks. The Cubs are the better team. This division's terrible, man. It is exactly what we thought it was coming into the season. We're still worse than Pittsburgh. Yeah, Which is wild. Worst team in the division. Yes. I, oh, that, all it yes. took this year, guys, this is it. To win the division, all it took this year, good defense, decent starting pitching, capable hitters. That was it. That's what the Brewers are. That's what the Cubs are. Honestly, that's what we all thought the Cardinals were going to be. And they failed, obviously, but I'm going to bet it. I think the Cubs end up winning this thing. I, I'm going to forget I'll bet it. it, too. I think Milwaukee Damn, still wins negative. the division. I, Milwaukee's got the pitching. And their offense is blah, but they've got a good bullpen. I think the Cubs' offense is just on a hot streak. I don't think their bats are going to continue to play this way, and I think that's what they've got to do to get up and win the division. Their pitching's okay. Um, but I, I just can't see the Cubs offense continuing to be this way. I, I think uh, I think it was Buster said this on his podcast yesterday. They're the kind of team that coming into the year, I expected they'd have to win games like 3-2, and now they're like blowing teams away. Like I don't think the offense is going to sustain. Yeah, their wins recently, 20-16-5-8-6-5-10-10-7-7-8. That's the run score. At, at one point, I don't know if this is still true or not. I'll have to look this up. They had more runs scored. I think it was in the first three days of August than the entire AL Central scored in that same span. I mean, their their offense has legitimately been good this year. Cody Bellinger just continues to rake. So he, somebody's going to make a really bad decision, and probably the Cubs, based on what he's done this year. If you look at any of his underlying statistics, guys, it is not good. Cardinals he, should. Let me rephrase <laughs> this. It's fine. He has been a fine hitter by the underlying numbers, and his actual numbers are like, whoa, this guy's an MVP. And he's probably going to get votes this year, deservingly so for his the actual power's numbers. power's not back. It's not. Power's not back for him, but, I mean, he's hitting the ball hard. They've scored the third most runs in the National League this year. The only teams in the American League that have scored more runs than the Cubs this year are the Rangers and the Rays. Cubs Baffling. Are, oh, never mind. Cubs are no longer this. They were the only team that had a positive run differential in the NL Central. Now the, the Brewers are right there. Yeah, plus the Cardinals are getting there too, right? Uh, minus 66, I think is what Jesus, it was. Like, they're like the, the Cardinals blues, are. They're like oh. the Blues goal differential. It's not ideal. All right, coming up in about 15 minutes or so, we're hitting the BK and Ferrario Rewind, and I believe we've got some Cardinals Bud Bash tickets to give away, so we'll get into that coming up in about 15 minutes or so. But next... We got to ask it. Would you rather have a low payroll and win or a high payroll and lose? What kind of question is that? High payroll and lose. It's a question that was asked earlier today. I think we got to answer it next year on 101 ESPN. 
We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Would you rather have your team load up with a massive payroll like the Mets did this year or the Padres have done this year? Or would you rather have a franchise like the Tampa Bay Rays who went to the World Series three years ago and they've been in the playoffs in each of the last four years? I guess it comes down to, would you rather have your team win at a lower payroll or not win with a higher payroll? And it's a leading question, but I'd rather win. I'm going to go out on that limb. I'm going to say I would rather win than lose, regardless of what the payroll looks like, Alex. I'm sure the Padres are saying they'd rather lose with this roster. Alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kiley. It's BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. That was the question that was asked earlier today on the opening drive. Now, we're getting a lot of pushback on the text line because of the question that I asked going into the break. I'm not the one that came up with the question. This was Randy's question earlier today. Trick question. I want to be in between with payroll and be mediocre like the Cardinals. So this is something that I think gets brought up a lot because we talk so much about the Cardinals' lack of spending. I think that the question for me would be framed a little bit differently, Alex. The Cardinals are never going to be spending at the top of the market. They're not going to be the Dodgers. They're not going to be the Mets. They're not going to be the Yankees or the Phillies. They're not going to be in the top five on any year. Well, then what's the point of this offseason then? To get to like... 7 to 10. This year, right now, they're at 16th in terms of payroll spending in 2023. The Cardinals shouldn't be that low. But that's also not why they're struggling this year. They're not struggling because of a lack of spending. They're struggling because they don't spend wisely. When they do go out to the market and they spend on players, they're bad at it, man. We've talked ad nauseum about their free agent failures. When the Rays go to market, they get Zach Eflin. Zach Eflin made nothing this year, man. He didn't get a big-time contract, but they're getting the most out of him. We don't talk a whole lot about some of the other mid-tier starting pitchers, like the Rangers. They went out and they, yeah, signed Jacob deGrom. They also made some pretty good signings over the last couple of years with John Gray. They bring in Andrew Heaney this year, who's been really solid for them. Nathan Avaldi made, like, what, $17 million a year over a couple-year deal? It's a really good signing by the Rangers. It's not about going out there and spending $300 million on your payroll. But going into this offseason, it is about signing the right players. And for the Cardinals this offseason, that requires them to spend. doesn't mean you have to go get Shohei Otani and Aaron Nola and Aaron Judge last year. But when you have a serious need, you go get a guy that actually fills that need and prevents those question marks from being asked. Last year, if you had just said at the beginning of the offseason, you knew then what you know now. Would you rather have Sean Murphy or... Wilson Contreras. Well, I'd rather have Sean Murphy. That's the quote-unquote cheap option, but it's also super expensive in terms of the pay, the prospects capital that you got to give up. You got to give up Aaron Nola. You got to give up Lars Newtbar. So to answer the question directly, like, would I rather have a low payroll and win or a high payroll and lose? Well, I'd obviously rather do whatever it takes to win. And this offseason, what it appears to require of the Cardinals in order to win is to improve or increase their payroll. And see, to me, like you can't be the Rays. As much as you want to be the Rays, like the Rays are a special breed. The Rays have a unique 
ability to identify talent that they can get the best out of. And to me, it's just an area that the Cardinals struggle with in terms of the younger players, like the veterans. We talked about this. You, you could go out there and, and locate those guys and bring them in and have success. But t- to sit here and say, well, I want to be like the Tampa Bay Rays. That's a tough thing to, to accomplish. Like the Atlanta Braves, it's a tough thing to accomplish. So what my answer to that question would be, why can't I be both? Why can't I be a team that spends somewhere between the top five, top 10 salaries in major league baseball, but still have that young position players that can come up and contribute, but I'm spending top dollars in the free agent market to get the best areas that I am short on because there are teams that can have success doing both. Yeah. And and I I think that's the Rangers, by the way, the Rangers are that team that you're talking about. Yeah, And I think the Cardinals can be that team that you're talking about where I've said this multiple times where I, they are so good at developing the pitching. It's been a little iffy recently, but they are so good at developing those uh, position players that aren't superstars. They're good at developing the complementary pieces, and I think they can do that on the pitching side too. I think I think McGreevy, Graceffo, depending on what Roby's shoulder ends up becoming, like they have the pieces to where they could develop some of the complementary arms, the number fours, the number fives, and they've developed that on, with the position players. If you can't develop the superstar, that's where you go in free agency and spin, and that's where you get to that like seven to ten in payroll. And I, I think that's where they are right now, where they haven't been able to develop any pitching. It's created such a big hole, but they've done a really good job developing position players. Well, how do you supplement that to where the position players are? You're going to have a great offense and also have good pitching. You're going to increase your payroll to get to the spot that we're talking about. So I think they can do both. It's just a matter of are they going to be willing to go out there and do what you said? Go. I can't remember either. Go s- snorkeling or scuba diving. Yeah, scuba diving over snorkeling. Yeah, Michael Gersh just wants Mo to put that uh, yeah. put that gear on, put that tank on your back, Mo, and dive it. And the other factor into this too is like you look at the Phillies. The Phillies are the prototypical team that spends all of the money to compete. The Padres. Look at the division that they're in. Look yep. at the teams they got to go up against. The Padres have to deal with the Dodgers and the Giants every season. The Phillies got to deal with the Braves. Whereas the Cardinals, if you're a top five, top seven team in Major League Baseball's payroll, you should be competing with all of these teams in your division because they're not those teams. So the other thing is like, we view the Padres as this massive failure this season, right? Just an unbelievable failure. If the Cardinals had the same record today that the Padres have, the Cardinals would be like five games out of first place in their division. And we'd be super pumped because look at the roster that they have. If they had, for example, the same exact record today that the Yankees have, you know where they'd be in the in the Cardinals division currently? And they'd be second. They would be exactly where the Cubs are. And we just all talked about whether or not the Cubs can win this division. So like as disappointing as it's been for those teams this year that are spending a ton of money and not getting the results that they paid for. And I would never argue that they have, they haven't, they've failed. They're still way better than the Cardinals are right now. The Mets are the one team that I can point to that says complete organizational disaster. They are nearly as bad as the Cardinals are this season. And they're spending more money than anybody in major league baseball by like a a full standard deviation above everybody. And look who they spent the money on. Two pitchers, two pitchers that were at the back end of their careers hoping to grab one more season out of they them. They got old. That's what happened to the, the Mets. The Padres spent the money on Soto and Machado and Snell and to Darvish Tatis. to Tatis. And the Yankees spent it on Judge and Stanton. They like got kind of old, too. Well, yeah, but what I'm saying is the they— The problem s- for those teams that you mentioned, though, I think this is a really f- interesting point. They failed to produce the internal options. Yeah. Like, why did the Mets fail? It was an organizational failure because they never were able to produce Brendan Donovan, Lars Newbar, Nolan Gorman, Jordan Walker. They never had those guys come up. And so what they were stuck with was 
Eduardo Escobar and Mark Canna and all of these guys starting every day, trading for Tommy Pham and him becoming a crucial piece to their lineup because they didn't have everyday position players. Even those pitchers that were over the hill, and they were fine. If they if the Cardinals had this year Verlander and Scherzer pitching the exact same way that they did in New York, the Cardinals would be making the playoffs this season, most likely. The problem for them was that they didn't produce what the Cardinals have internally. The same thing was true for the Yankees. To a degree, the same thing is true for the Padres. They haven't yeah. produced a whole lot of internal all talent All these teams recently. are top-heavy. Exactly. And, and the problem that it becomes is, you've, sure, you've got all that talent, but you don't have that. what I was just saying, where the Cardinals can supplement it through their system, where they may not develop the superstar. I mean, the Cardinals are starting to get there with their bats and Gorman, Walker. We'll see where those guys go, and maybe Tink hits on the pitching side. But what's the one thing that the Cardinals have been good at since since I've been alive, really, is they've been great at developing those complementary pieces that can come off the bench, mm-hmm, start exactly. a pinch. And that's what the Mets, the Padres, the Yankees have not been able to do. Here's the other thing, too. Like, I, I'm if I'm a Padres fan, yeah, this season sucks and I'm probably upset, but it's not like I'm pissed off at the organization I, because that roster that they have is as exciting as any roster is out there in terms of next year. Next year is going to be a year I expect the team to go win a World Series again sure. because you got Soto and Machado and Tatis, and I know that they're going to spend. So I, I mean, I can't be upset about it. Yeah, I want to win more, but they're doing it on the right pieces rather than the Mets who are doing it on dudes who hopefully can get you there in one year. All of this comes down to: Are you able to develop talent internally while paying for it externally? The Phillies have done this. They developed Stott. They developed Bohm. They've got guys internally that have been a big part of their rotation by developing them internally the Atlanta Braves are the team that everybody should be modeling their organization after now part of this is because they tanked and they were able to get some big time players but they also took advantage of the international market and they developed those guys internally Ronald Acuna Jr.'s stud Austin Riley internal Albies internal like they got guys internally Michael Harris uh, the second those guys became studs, and then they were able to sign them to below market value contracts because they were already on the roster on pre-arbitration deals. And that's the way that you have to operate if you're in the Atlanta Braves situation or the Cardinal situation. You sign those guys long-term. Spencer Strider signed long-term, and you go out there and supplement your talent. You go sign Matt Olson. You go out there and sign Charlie Morton. You go get whatever is missing from your club. Cardinals can do that this offseason. What they're missing is starting pitching and depth in their bullpen. If you go do that this offseason and you end up 10 to 12 in terms of payroll, you're fine. I don't need them to t- to, uh, to end up in the top end of, of this payroll politics stuff. Like, I don't care. Just be in a range where it allows you to get the pitching that you need, the pitching that you crave, the pitching that you have for so long decided to punt on. This is the offseason where all of that has to change. So it's not about... Would you rather have a top five payroll and lose or a bottom five payroll and win? The Cardinals should be neither of those two things. They should be top 10 to 12 and do a whole hell of a lot of winning. That's what they need to get back to this offseason. The Rewind is next. We're right back to the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Let's run it back with a daily rewind on BK and Ferrario. Brought to you by Stewart's American Mortgage. Google the bagel loan. Featuring zero fees and zero closing costs. Next five 
five minutes or so, and you'll get a chance to win a four-pack of tickets to next Tuesday night's Budweiser Bash. Cardinals versus the A's. These tickets are oh, flying off the shelf. Oh, next that's week's why. Bud Bash features a limited edition Gary Gaetti bobblehead. Text in coming up in about five minutes or so. Write this number down somewhere, 314-399-9646. And if you're texting number 101 in about five minutes, you are getting the pair of tickets to the Budweiser Bash next Tuesday. All right, Alex, let's finish today where we began, and that is by looking at the Cardinals' current opponent. They're going up against the Tampa Bay Rays over the next few uh, days down in Tampa. And tonight the Rays have Zach Eflin on the mound. Eflin, to me, Alex, represents something that the Cardinals should take into consideration this offseason. He last year was replaced in the rotation by the end of the year in Philadelphia. He had been a stalwart in their rotation for previous seasons and was incredibly average looked like a number three probably more like a number four starter for most teams around a four era this season he's gone down to tampa bay they fixed a couple of things with him and now suddenly he's a legitimate number two or three starter he's got a three four era on the season and tampa does what they've always done and they make a guy into the best possible version of themselves that's what the Cardinals need to do this offseason. I think it more applies to the bullpen than it does in their rotation, but they need to target two or three pitchers this offseason that other teams don't view as being as valuable as what the Cardinals do, and they need to be right on them. The Rays were right on Zach Eflin. That's what matters. It doesn't matter what you pay him. doesn't matter where you get him from. Free agent, trade, whatever. Be right on the guys that you go out there and acquire. That's what the Rays are more often than not. I want them to do that in trades target those guys in trades because what i want them to do is target the guys via free agency that everybody values but you're the team that goes above the rest like yamamoto that's a player that i would imagine a lot of teams are going to be calling to find out if they are in the running for you should be one of the first teams that's making that phone call nola snell giolito everybody's going to want these guys Go get them because that's what the top teams, the Phillies, that's what teams like the Yankees, the Dodgers, the Giants, that's what they're going to be doing. But what I want you to do to emulate the Tampa Bay Rays is go target those types of pitchers that you're talking about that might have fallen out of grace in certain teams or might just be undervalued elsewhere. Go trade Dylan Carlson for that player. Absolutely. Go trade Tommy Edmond for that player. So they do that too. They did that with Tyler Glass now, Drew Rasmussen, Aaron Savali. Those guys were all brought into their rotation because of trades that they made previously. They just traded a top 100 prospect for Aaron Savali at the deadline this year. Go find your Aaron Savali, whoever that guy is on the market, and trade like Alec Burleson for them, for example. Drew Rasmussen, they got him in a deal where they sent Willie Adamas to uh, the Brewers because they had somebody internally in Willie Adamas, or excuse me, in um, Wander Franco that was going to take Willie Adamas' job. So you've got a surplus there, trade from it. Cardinals have that in the outfield right now. They got Tyler Glass now when they decided, you know what, Chris Archer, we're going to trade you up to Pittsburgh. We're going to go ahead and get Tyler Glass now as part of our rotation. They got Austin Meadows in that deal as well. Didn't work there. Worked out with Tyler Glass now. Those are the kinds of deals that the Cardinals need to be looking at this offseason. Yeah, and I think where you're looking at that is at that number four spot in the rotation where you're looking to improve above Steven Matz and kind of fall right behind Miles Michaelis. And I think that's in that trade that you're talking about, whether it's trading Carlson or if it's trading a top 100 prospect to go get a Aaron Savale type, or it is looking at free agency and looking for the guy that you just yeah. said, like a uh, who's starting tonight again for Tampa Bay? Zach Eflin, thank you. I had a Valdi in my Efron. head for some reason. Eflin, by the way, I want to be clear here. If you sign a guy like Zach Eflin, it's to replace Liberator yeah. or Hudson or McGreevy. It's to replace that fifth starter 
in your rotation. This is not taking place of Aaron Nola or Yamamoto. Like this is to be at the back end of your rotation and maybe they improve from what you were expecting out of them and pitch like a number three yeah. and they jump over Steven Matz in your playoff rotation. Yeah. And, and I agree with you. I, I think that's what you, that four spot, I would prefer they not go into the next season saying, all right, Matz is our four and we have an internal competition for five. Even if that means they're spending big on one and two, I still think you should go into the season with Matz as the five and look for more certainty at four, whether it is signing someone or it is trading for someone to bring in and add that certainty and pull off a race type move. Cardinals back in action tonight down at the Trop in Tampa Bay. Looking forward to watching that one this evening. The fast lane will have the lineup game coming up at 2 o'clock. But right now is your chance to win a four-pack of tickets to next Tuesday night's barn burners between the Cardinals and the A's. You can find details for that game at cardinals.com slash promotions. Or you can tell us, what did Alex say? That Mo and Gersh should be wearing in their office this offseason. There was a specific set of outfits that those two would be wearing. If you're texting number 101 at 314 399 9646 with the correct answer, <laughs> correct answers only to that question, oh, you're no. going to next Tuesday's Budweiser Bash between the Cardinals and the A's. For Alex and T Bone, I'm BK. We'll talk to you guys tomorrow. Fast Lane's coming up next. I love it if T Bone got a face tap. He got a tattoo with cinnamon on his ass. You've been listening to the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN.